Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am absolutely excellent. Don't think I could possibly be any better. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to be better after we cover SummerSlam 1996. Uh, once upon a time, I fell out of love with wrestling, and this was my first pay-per-view back. So I'm excited to talk about SummerSlam 96. But first, let's tie up a few loose ends from last week. Dude, I got a bunch of feedback that our Paul Heyman episode was one of our very best episodes. But we did get some feedback that maybe thought you were burying your old friend Paul, or perhaps were just jealous of his spot in life these days. Uh, what did you hear, and would you like to respond to that? Uh, criticism that we received. Well, the last thing I am is jealous of Paul Heyman and uh, my spot in life and compared to his spot in life. I absolutely hope that Paul is doing tremendous. Uh, Paul's a friend of mine. I like Paul, always have liked Paul, and wish Paul absolutely no ill will. There is no jealousy. There's no animosity. There's no bitterness in any way, shape, or form from me to Paul Heyman. I think that Paul has done great with what Paul has done, and I'm very proud of him and very happy for him and wish him nothing but continued success. So to the naysayers and the people that say that I'm bitter and jealous, uh, couldn't be any further from the truth in any way, shape, or form. Very happy for Paul. All right, Bruce, it's time. It's time. It's time for what happened when... SummerSlam 1996 went down at the Gundarena, the beautiful Gundarena. Boy, I heard that a lot during this show. It's SummerSlam 1996. Uh, before we get into the show, let's sort of set the stage. We're on the heels of In Your House International Incident. We covered King of the Ring 96 in long form. You can check it out on the archives. That was the June pay-per-view, and I would strongly recommend you check that one out if you haven't already. It's a great companion piece for what we're doing here today. 
And of course, that show is most famous for what? The Austin 316 promo. Uh, but it's an interesting summer in the WWF, to say the least. Ahmed Johnson and the Ultimate Warrior were both in action. Uh, and then as we get on into the main event of International Incident, Warrior is a no-show. He's out of there. Uh, so they bring Sid in as a replacement. And the match actually wins best match of the night in the fan poll and the observer, but it's not enough to save the show. International incident only got 38.7% thumbs up. Bruce, let's talk about international incident just for a minute here, because at this point you guys are running pay-per-views every month. And a lot of people felt like maybe this caused pay-per-view to lose a little bit of luster. Um, we'll talk about the strategy for in your house, uh, another time with the shorter runtime and the lower pricing. But I'm curious if you, in hindsight, considered that show a success. Do you recall coming out of that? Was everybody pleased? I don't think anybody was pleased. I think we were pleased that we got through it. Again, you had Warrior, who was a big part of that promotion, moving into it. And any time that you have to make a replacement of that magnitude, it's tough. And you're happy any time that you can get out of it and you feel that, Okay, it wasn't a bad show. So that was the general feeling overall. And in comparison, doing the monthly shows, you asked if that hurt. And if, in hindsight, looking back on it, I think that the monthly pay-per-views, the in-your-house, which were at a lower price point, might have just told people, hey, this is less than the five big ones. Um, it's less in price, but it also gave the perception of being less important too. So there wasn't that urgency to really buy those in your house. And there wasn't an urgency. They weren't must see pay-per-views, in my opinion. Well, I tell you what, it was an interesting time in the business because oddly enough, pay-per-views down, but for both the WCW and WWF touring houses are up. Ratings are up. Uh, international incident, uh, drew a record house of 14,804 folks, uh, nearly 12,000 of those paid 200 and nearly $15,000 Canadian. Uh, and this all goes down in Vancouver, of course, but it's not a sellout because the building holds 23,000, but a gate that big, which is a Vancouver record, the most ever for wrestling in Vancouver, Vince has to be pleased with, right? Or is it still disappointing because it's such a big building? No, we were pleased with it, and I want to say that that was the first time that we ever did uh, a televised event from Vancouver. That was a big deal for us. Uh, just doing it on the West Coast and doing it in Canada, that was just kind of a big deal for us at the time. And we were pleased with the house. We were pleased with the turnout. That's a huge building, and with the kills that we had for the set and everything else, it was full. Uh, Vader scored a pin over Shawn Michaels in the six man main event, which gives their SummerSlam match some credibility. Uh, but Meltzer would call it a weak screw job finish. And he says Vader didn't come off during the match or post match as anything, but a large heel and not necessarily a real title threat or someone with a hot grudge with a very popular champ. Um, and I guess this is worth mentioning because on the house show loops and Meltzer reminds us here. After being beaten almost too easily at arenas throughout the country nearly every night and not being portrayed as a killer on television, it's kind of hard to sell Vader as being one of the big threats of the year to Michaels, despite having the huge size difference, because the size factor has apparently never been less important. 
carry me through the thinking of having Vader work with Sean and all the house shows and losing. If that's going to be your SummerSlam main event, this seems to go against what you were doing a decade prior. You wouldn't necessarily give a clean finish prior to having it on pay-per-view, right? It would depend. We didn't have pay-per-view a decade before that. Um, so that it's tough to compare those two. They, they had, you know, the major show WrestleMania and that was it a decade prior. So it, it, it's apples and pomegranates, but at this time you're, you're looking at the attraction and, and hoping that people are going to buy the same attraction live in the arenas that you're promoting on pay-per-view at the time. And that was the general thinking behind it. But again, I, I, I just, <laughs> And I know I sound like a broken record here, but but Meltzer is a broken record when he when he says this dribble and these guys that write these dirt sheets and have these websites that, that get their information from someone else that they have an ability to to see records and see uh, athletic commission reports and what have you and tax reports, but they ignore those and they listen to a guy that bought a ticket sitting in the third row that says, oh, it was half a house. Um, that match was a two-star match, or they hear hearsay what? from somebody else and reported this fact. And that, that, that just me, drives me insane. They, they ba- have it based on nothing. Help me understand what I said that was inaccurate. Bader didn't lose those matches. Everybody in the arena. No, his, no, his feeling about, uh, that size doesn't matter. We're not, uh, making Leon a monster heel. And we were making Leon a monster heel. The entire promotion of SummerSlam was about monsters well, and a now, monster heel in Vader. Uh, I don't understand. Meltzer's here giving you uh, like props for saying that it's no longer the big man's territory. You know, once upon a time, it was the, the land of the slow plotting giants. Here you've got the best performer in the business as the champ. It's a compliment for Meltzer, but because it comes from him, you just can't accept it. No, because he was knocking the way that we were portraying Vader. Okay. So you thought you were doing a good job with Vader up to this point. I do think we were doing a good job with Vader up to that point. Uh, the big story coming out of international incident, of course, isn't warrior. No showing, uh, fans popped huge for Sid. So that seemingly works out just fine. Uh, but Meltzer would write the one point deserving of criticism was the handling of the Robert snow show at press time. We don't really know what the real story is. All we know is that Roberts was scheduled to be on a Toronto radio station the previous Thursday to plug the event and didn't call in. When the station contacted the WWF as to why Roberts never called, the WWF supposedly told them, and this is what was said on the air, that Roberts had gone AWOL. During the 30-minute pregame show, the Roberts-Mankind match was never mentioned once, and it wasn't until after the pay-per-view show had begun that it was mentioned Roberts wouldn't be there and that Henry Godwin would take his place. And his absence was explained by an obviously worked explanation of a rib injury suffered at the King of the Ring pay-per-view and that the WWF didn't know until late Sunday that he wouldn't be there. Jake did a telephone interview on the live raw the next night with the injury being called a torn intercoastal uh, and that he'd be out two to three weeks. So what's the real scoop, Bruce? What happened with Jake? Real scoop was, yeah, Jake went AWOL when Jake had disappeared for a while. Jake had made claims of being sick and had made claims of an injury and saying that he wasn't feeling well and wasn't able to perform and, and that he was sick, basically called in sick is what he did. Now, why, you know, he didn't show up was because Vince didn't, didn't want to deal with that crap and didn't want to deal with it at that time. So he gave Jake the benefit of the doubt. This was Jake's 
time where we were trying Jake out, uh, writing television and in the creative process. And Vince gave him the benefit of the doubt. Undertaker would beat Goldust on that pay-per-view when mankind came from under the ring, put the mandible claw on him and then dragged him under the ring. Eventually a bunch of smoke comes out from under the ring. And finally the undertaker pops out from the other side and chases mankind to the back. Uh, they brawl backstage and they show, uh, I guess a poorly lit clip of the two fighting into a boiler room. This of course is to set up the boiler room match at SummerSlam. Uh, I've always enjoyed undertaker Goldust, and undertaker mankind. What was it about these weird characters that just work so well together in your opinion? The macabre and the fact that you had bizarre versus bizarre. So yeah, it just, it just worked. It was a monster movie for lack of a better term. You had Godzilla versus Mothra and King Kong versus Godzilla. So it was, it was a monster movie. Um, I, I I'm looking forward to talking about the boiler room match and how it was laid out, but I guess we'll just circle back to that in a few minutes. The finish of the six man, of course, on the pay-per-view is when Michaels goes to set up the super kit, but Cornette grabs his ankle, Vader charges him into the corner, uh, and then does the Vader bomb for the pin. After the match, Sid power bombs Hart and Smith. Uh, and then when he goes to power bomb Vader, uh, they pull Vader out of the ring. Uh, and of course, to send everybody home happy, Michaels does the running tope over the top rope onto Vader. And it was well-reviewed uh, in the Observer. And then the next night, you guys head over to the key arena in Seattle. It's a 20,000 seat arena, but you guys only have 6,700 paying fans for a gate of $91,000. That's worth mentioning. While that sounds anemic, that's the largest gate in raw history at that point, but it feels like 6,700 folks in a 20,000 seat arena doesn't instill a ton of confidence. Were you guys getting good rent deals since it was a Monday show or how are you able to justify you know, booking something like this. Well, you don't, when you go into it, you want to do a lot more than that. So you (laughs) you justify it by, you wanted to do more. Um, there's not really any justification to it. You you drew what you drew. We did well the the night before, and that was the state of the business. The Pacific Northwest was never a big stronghold for us. Um, Don Owens ran us successfully for years in that area, but much smaller arenas, much smaller markets. And it wasn't someplace that we would ordinarily go into and draw well. So real quick, I feel like this is worth mentioning. Um, Mark Marrow pinned the goon on one of these shows and main event anywhere in the country. Meltzer gives this recap. Goon wears the ice hockey costume and boots that look like ice skates. The gimmick has a good look to it but he looked worse than awful in his syndicated TV over the weekend. He looked a little better here, but still pretty bad. One thing is amazing is that Irwin could pass for being about 30 and his gimmick is he's a guy kicked off an amateur team in Minnesota, which would mean it was probably played by someone in their early twenties, but the dude's really 42 or 43. There's some controversy regarding the gimmick. Apparently Ontario based wrestler, Scott Demore sent in the idea of being a hockey goon with costume sketches and basically the entire idea at a Titan, not all that long ago, and then never got called back. And then he saw what he claims were his idea on Irwin. Demore has been doing the same gimmick for about seven months on shows in Michigan. This isn't the first time that happened and it won't be the last. 
advice to young wrestlers. If you've got a gimmick that you think is great and you want to make a career trademark it before giving the idea to a major promotion. So you were there, you know, these guys, including Scott Demore, chat me up. Do you remember this idea coming in? Absolutely not. Have you ever and had this conversation with Scott? No, I haven't, but I will. <laughs> I definitely will next week. I'll see Scott and I'll have the conversation with him. Absolutely. The problem is, is people, whenever they send in ideas, whether it be for TV or any creative ideas, those ideas are never open, never looked at because for this reason that people can claim, oh, I sent it in, you know, gave him the idea. The goon came up in a meeting with Bill Irwin when we were bringing Bill in and talking about Bill's hobbies and what Bill did growing up, what his passions were, and Bill played hockey. Bill was a goon on the hockey team in school, in high school, growing up. He was a big hockey fan, played it um, as a kid his whole life, and was the goon. And it was Bill Irwin's idea to do the goon, and that's how it came up. Amazing. Um, the WWF has gotten cold feet on the lesbian angle. It's been changed from Marlena having the hots for Sable to Goldust having the hots for Sable. And it's Goldust who is having Marlena give Sable the presence rather than the other way around as the angle was originally going to be. Um, chat me up through here. There's rumor and innuendo that this was the first time you guys tried to pursue an angle like that. And USA got cold feet. Whose idea was it? Uh, when do you remember it being changed or is this all rumor and innuendo? No, Vince actually got cold feet. We, we started it and we started it with Marlena kind of coming on to Sable. The idea behind that was the whole package, that gold dust package of gold dust and Marlena, this androgynous couple um, that both of them probably swing any and every way. So it was started that way, and Vince got cold feet. I don't know if it was pressure from USA or if he just felt watching it that he was uncomfortable going there for whatever reason. But we we had planned on going full hill, you know. One of the raw main events here was Shawn Michaels and Ahmed Johnson taking on the smoking guns. They go about 16 and a half minutes in a pretty good match. Uh, when all of a sudden, Ron Simmons, dressed up as an Egyptian, attacks Ahmed. Uh, Lawler in commentary said it looks like Ron Simmons only bigger. Uh, Meltzer would write that Simmons looked to be in the 300 pound range and his ring name will be Farouk Asar. Um, Farouk Asad. I, I know it's Farouk Asad, but he, he spelled it F A R O U K A S A R. So maybe uh, those backroom phone calls that he got from the payphones. Uh, had a little static in the line that day. Uh, we'll talk about that. I'm sure a little later, but yeah, we'll just, no, we'll do it now. Ahmed Johnson was injured around this same time. And allegedly, uh, this comes on the heels of suffering a broken nose from Owen Hart, uh, at the pay-per-view international incident. And now here, when Ron attacks him, he has a pretty serious kidney injury. Now that's what the storyline angle was. I need you to tell us what really happened because there's lots of rumor and innuendo out there that this ruptured kidney was legit from Ron Simmons here. Well, it, it definitely came after the attack from Ron Simmons. Yes. And, and, uh, Ahmed Johnson blamed Ron Simmons for the ruptured kidney. 
definitely blamed him, felt that the, the kick from Ron was stiff. It may have been a little snug, but I think also at the time that, that Ahmed was a little bit injury prone as well. And Ahmed, you know, came back, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then he had more complications. Went in the hospital. Uh, it was touch and go. I mean, they didn't know if he was going to lose lose one of those kidneys or not. It, it was not not a good thing. But there was a, a little bit of heat between Ron Simmons and Ahmed Johnson for a little while. Yeah, and you guys actually showed um, that footage on Raw of the surgery. And allegedly, you know, he did have to be hospitalized multiple times because of these complications. And, and it was once upon a time thought to be really career ending when that's going on. What's the communication like with the office is Ahmed checking in every day from the hospital or is somebody going to see him? Um, or is it just the, the, the rumor is, 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 is it swirling the rumor mill swirling? How does that come about that you hear a guy is really struggling like this? And this might be the end. No, we were in contact with him daily, just finding out exactly how he was doing and, and what the, prognosis was that was something that we were in constant contact with him uh that's something that jj Dillon would have done and yeah, then just stayed go. in touch with him vince probably gave him a call every day too uh pat patterson was a part of the pull apart and it's the first time we've seen pat on tv in quite a while and there are reports in the observer that patterson had leased his connecticut home that he had been trying to sell and he's going to be moving back to florida and at this point, wasn't a, wasn't an official part of the WWF, but was allegedly just in for the pay-per-view and TVs as a guest. Uh, but there's also reports out there that Pat wanted to be full-time for TV and pay-per-view, but doesn't really want to work in the office anymore. Can you share any insight on that, of how that came about and what his role was during this point in the company? December of 1995, Pat retired. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. So kind of like Terry Funk and Mick Foley and every other professional wrestler <laughs> that retires, um, Pat came back. Pat originally had said that he was going to come back for WrestleMania 12 because that was when I was getting married and I wanted Pat to be there at the wedding. And Pat said, I'll come, I'll come to the wedding and I'll come to WrestleMania. Well, Pat came to WrestleMania, but, Vince thought, Patrick, why don't you uh, agent the Bret Hart Shawn Michaels match? Okay. So Pat was the agent for the Shawn Michaels Bret Hart match. The main event of WrestleMania. The main event of WrestleMania. And as time went on, Pat 
I don't know if he was, well, yeah, he was missing the business. But Pat didn't want the everyday grind of being in the office and dealing with Vince on a day-to-day basis and doing the creative, doing the booking, writing the TVs. So we just used Pat at TVs to come in and lend his expertise and be an agent and give his input. How does that work? Does, does Vince feel like Pat wants to be asked back or does Pat feel like he has to ask Vince if he can come back? It feels like a kind of a weird situation. Like, Hey, I know I retired, but psych, I want to be back. I'm not done. I think a little bit of both, but I think that Vince probably made the overture. Um, we all wanted Pat back. Uh, Pat being backstage was valuable. His input and, and working with the talent, there was nobody that could lay out a finish like Pat Patterson to this day, in my opinion. Um, the only guy that's come close is Michael Hayes. That's my opinion. That's my thoughts. Uh, stand by those. But to have Pat have his expertise, I think everybody was happy to have him around. So, of course, when... Uh, Farouk takes Ahmed out. This means the IC belt is down for the count. So they're going to hold an intercontinental tournament uh, for the belt. And they start that after SummerSlam. And one of the fun things that happen every now and again is something like this story. Pat Patterson is brought out to do commentary for some of these matches under the guise that he was the very first intercontinental champion. And that was a, a pretty big tournament down in Rio de Janeiro, right, Bruce? Huge tournament. Huge. And Pat won won that match in the arrow against Ted DiBiase. And when he comes record, out, record crowd too. When he comes out, um, they play stripper music, which I guess is some sort of inside joke. Whose idea was this, and why was it Vince's? <laughs> Do you know why the tournament took place in Rio de Janeiro? I do not. Okay, this, this, is, this is a little tidbit of information that has never been made public before, I don't think. I don't think it's in Patterson's book, but the tournament site where Pat Patterson won the Intercontinental Championship was Rio de Janeiro, was because Vince was tickled at the way Pat could not say Rio de Janeiro with his accent. <laughs> Uh, so, Mr. Patterson, uh, your intercontinental um, victory uh, with this championship belt and that, that tournament. Where was that tournament again? At a bad Rio. <laughs> and Pat just would just say Rio, but it tickled Vince to get Pat to struggle with Rio de Janeiro. Um, so do you remember the uh, the stripper music rib when he's coming out to do commentary? Uh, sure, yes, all the time. So around this time, Aldo Montoya, who would once become just incredible, is positioned as a protege of Jake Roberts. And, of course, uh, he's working a match with Lawler. Lawler beats him and then pours a bottle of Jim Beam down his throat. Um, I'm curious, what did you put in the Jim Beam bottle? Was this sweet tea, like on movies, or what's the go-to fill-in for liquor on WWF sets? Uh, Dark sweet tea. There you go. Uh, on these same tapings, Crush debuts, beating Savio Vega. He's wearing black pants, a black T-shirt, and a sleeveless jacket. And they even go ahead and reference his criminal past. Was he okay with that? And what does it sound like when you guys pitch him on that idea? Because it feels like something that goes against you know, traditional booking. No, Brian had this idea of being a tough guy, you know, a tough guy, thug, prisoner type character. 
I mean, we even had that, that crappy uh, shark tooth tattoo across his head. It, it it was it was it was Crush's idea and something the Vince went for against um, pretty much almost everybody's better judgment. But was, Vince had a soft spot for Brian Adams. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Was he boys with somebody, or did Vince just really see it with him? He, Vince had a soft spot for him. Um, he he liked Brian and he bought it. Well, there you go. Uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, uh, signs a three-year contract. Uh, and of course, uh, it's expected that he'll renew his push now that they've got a long-term commitment from him. Boy, to say the least there, uh, Kevin Kelly debuts. Uh, I guess I should ask here before we go to Kevin Kelly, was there any concern that Hunter, cause around this time, Waltman is free to go. and He's headed to WCW Hall of Nash are already there. Is there any concern that even though Hunter at that point was not necessarily a major player that since his contract is coming up just in case he's leaving too, let's get our money's worth out of him. And then when he resigns, okay, now that we know he's with us and he's paid his dues for the curtain call, now we'll put the belt on him. I, I don't understand the question. We, we looked at, we looked at Hunter at that point as someone for the future. And, and yeah, the, the idea was get him signed first before you do anything with him. But was there any concern since the other three had left? Like he, he might've went to WCW. Yeah, there was concern. That's why we, we got that contract out there to him to see where he stood. I guess what I'm asking is, is that just something that you guys were paranoid about or was there talk in the locker room that he was unhappy? he was out of here or was he a loyalist where it was like i don't want to go down there i grew up here in the northeast i want to be here. i've already been down there i don't want to go back that type of deal we wanted him there and we just wanted that commitment we wanted to know where he stood because he was a part of that clique and a part of that group we wanted to see where he was here's the here's contract we'd like for you to be here and he wanted to be there Kevin Kelly debuts uh, on Superstars and the cable shows with Jim Ross and came across very well. Meltzer would write, even more impressive when you consider his limited experience. And it's reported in The Observer that he's been groomed to be the host of Superstars. But at some point, Vince starts touring with the idea of getting out of the announce booth and they actually try Raw without him for the first time. So you've got JR, Jerry Lawler, and Kevin Kelly at the desk. Uh, why was Kevin Kelly so successful so early? And why don't you think he had a longer run with the company than he did? Kevin Kelly was never being groomed to replace Vince. It was actually Jr. kind of being groomed <laughs> to replace Vince at, at that, that time period. Kevin, I saw Kevin, Kevin had sent a tape. He was working with Eddie Mansfield's uh, International Wrestling Federation out of Orlando, Florida. They used to tape at Universal Studios. And I saw Kevin. He was a good play-by-play guy. We brought him in, auditioned him, and I thought Kevin did a good job. The idea was to get some more youthful announcers in, and Kevin fit that role. He was a good play-by-play announcer, and we were looking to do something with him, possibly on challenge or just break him in and try him out. Uh, any fun nicknames or ribs of Kevin Kelly you can share with us? No, but I will say this, that Brock Lesnar told me one time that he thought that 
Kevin Kelly was me for about six months in Ohio Valley Wrestling. That makes me very happy. It didn't make me happy. Uh, let's talk about the state of the business. Uh, this is pretty amazing when you think about how much wrestling has changed in under six months here. Uh, from the WWF's 95 to 96, this is drastic. Paid attendance goes from 3275 to 5486. The average gate is 44,000 to 80,000. The cable rating is actually down from 2.13 to 2.03, and buy rates are down, oddly, 0.95 to 0.79. Now, what does that mean money-wise? It means they go from an average pay-per-view gross of 2.66 million to 2.19. Uh, business is also on the upswing for WCW. But it's kind of interesting because prior to 96, uh, Meltzer had theorized that house shows were essentially lost leaders and they're in place to give guys work, keep your local syndicated stations happy, and then try to sell your merchandising and advertising locally. Uh, Meltzer wrote specifically if a show made money, that was good. But the idea was almost to run shows, not to lose too much money. The money would largely be made on the monthly pay-per-view show, which was declining rapidly in an ancillary way, such as ad revenue, merchandise, magazines, 900 lines, etc. Can you speak to that? Do you think in the mid nineties, let's say 95, that some of the house shows were essentially lost leaders to get to the other revenue. And it was just something you felt like you had to do to promote your pay-per-views. Traditionally, we were always in the live event business. Right. And the television show was a commercial to get people out to the live events. As time wore on and pay-per-view became more popular, more prevalent, it became an advertisement to get people to go and buy the pay-per-view on a monthly basis because you were reaching more people. We never got out of the live event business. It, it became a loss leader but that was not intentional. We continued to do it because there was a fear. If you took yourself out of the marketplace that you would lose whatever footing you did have. So we continued to do uh, house shows and it was always the intention to be in the live event business. That was always the business. I like, I like that you say that, you know, it was to build some pay-per-view because oddly, even though every other metric is up, pay-per-view is down in 96. Um, but by at this point in 96, both companies, WWF and WCW are turning profits with their house shows. And remember from the WCW side of things, they even talked about doing away with house shows completely. Uh, by this point, the WWF is running less than half as many shows in 96 though, as they were in 95, which really means fewer B towns and more a town shots. So you'd see some repeats of a towns and almost no B towns. And Bruce, that kind of seems like a no brainer to me. Why does it take until 96 for you guys to start saying, Hey, let's just run fewer shows, forget the B towns. Let's just hit the a towns more often. Did that feel like running less shows to Vince was like admitting defeat or backing up? It was economics. And when he realized that they can make more money off of one big show, you, we put more guys on it. We, we made them bigger shows, right? Um, and put more guys on it to get more guys work. And all of a sudden you started seeing, well, we're, we're making more money here. And in the, the big scheme of things, the, the overall plan was to get back to where we could run more than one event a night. 
who recognizes that opportunity to run fewer shows, but essentially bigger shows, and that will be more profitable. Is that something Vince recognizes, or is there a CFO, or is that just a creative decision that the financial people aren't even really privy to? No, it's it definitely stems from a financial um, a CFO, and at the time, I don't know if that was Doug Sage's or uh, it wasn't Augie. I mean, it may have still been Doug Sage's at that point that brings that to Vince's attention that then brings it to our attention for us to look at and kind of restructure the way that we've been doing business. I know a lot of people are listening right now who are just fans of wrestling. and don't care about the business side and you're annoyed, but uh, too bad. Skip forward a little bit. I'm not doing, uh, the business is on a rise here for the first time since it started to decline sometime in late 92. And this is a big deal here because Meltzer is going to report that Titan had made the decision to drop all the compensation from their syndication package come September. That's a pretty big deal. And let me break down what that means. I think most people listening are in the loop on this. They've been around forever. Um, and, and the WWF kind of coming to the market and buying out your TV out from under you is the narrative that a lot of the old timey promoters would still say, this is what happened to me. But a lot of times they did it to the guy before them too. Vince just got the last laugh. Um, well, eventually the cost of maintaining that syndicated network had become more than the income that they were getting from the national advertising side. So they made the decision to just stop paying for TV time. And that's kind of what happened to Bill Watts and Jim Crockett and how their expenses got out of hand. And it's likely why Smoky Mountain didn't grow much more than it did. And of course, once upon a time, even ECW participated in this model. Bruce, do you have any interesting stories about these compensation deals you can share with us or just how this concept worked? Can you shed any light? Well, well, let me correct, let me correct that as well, because when Vince first started his expansion and Vince went out and bought television time in different markets, that was the way, if you go back even before that, a lot of times promoters would simply barter their time. They would get their television show on a local market. Uh, for free in exchange for seven minutes of commercial time. The television station that they were on could sell advertising time and the promoter could keep seven minutes to promote their shows or sell advertising time or whatever they wanted to do. That was the general model until Vince went around and started buying television time. Well, that evolved when the ratings and the demand for WWF program became so great that they went from paying weekly compensation to stations that now they were asking stations no different than any other syndicated television program to pay us. So there were many, many years in there from about 1988, 89 uh, till roughly this time frame that the stations were paying WWE, not the other way around. Well, that there were still, there were still barter situations, but for the most part, they were paying the syndicated program like they would for wheel of fortune or other syndicated programs. So let me be clear. You're saying the WWF was not paying for TV time in 96 majority. There were some places that they may have been, but the majority of the programs, the stations were paying us no different than any other syndicated show. There were markets where Vince, that Vince wanted and wanted to keep times, and they may have paid for those. But overall, they had changed, they had changed the format to where 
we're going to be like, you know, kept using Wheel of Fortune and every other, you know, King World. If you want our programming, you're going to pay for our programming like you do everybody else. Then you get to this time frame, and this became the age of the infomercial, where you would have uh, Ron Popeil, who was the master of this. Well, and, and so that's – I'm glad you bring that up because that's what Meltzer's saying here is that now, you know, that those guys are coming in, and they're offering way more money because they can sell a whole lot more Ronco, set it and forget it, turkey rotisserie machines yep. than, than you could wrestling tickets. Well, and, and because they, they had changed the whole format from paying us to now Ron, Ron Popeil comes in and says, wait a minute, I'll take that hour of time and I'm going to pay you. So we went from paying to getting paid to now someone coming in and, and basically doing the same thing to us going, we'll buy the time and we'll pay you more. You'll make more. You guys are paying for that time. The hell with that. When your contract's up, I'll, I'll give you $1,000 an hour for that. And Ron Popeil was paying big money in big markets for a lot of those time slots and made billions. So Dave gives an example of how this compensation thing works, and he uses the San Francisco market uh, for his example. He talks about when the WWF came to buy TV in 84, They were spending $100,000 a year for a mid-level UHF station, Channel 20. And this is the station that the AWA had been occupying, but of course the AWA can't compete with that, so they're forced out. Eventually, the WWF gains enough popularity to move to Channel 2, which is the leading independent station on the West Coast for both, both shows, Superstars and Challenge. And they were paying in the neighborhood of around $150,000 per year plus 5% of the gross from the local house show. And that included closed circuits of WrestleMania. And that meant a lot of money back in the day. So as a result, they're drawing huge houses in Oakland, San Francisco, and cities like that. Eventually the NWA gets an opportunity to snag the challenge spot. Uh, and that hurts the WWF's drawing ability there while they have it, but it doesn't help the NWA enough to keep it. So when the WWF gets the spot back, business picks right back up. So the idea here is you're able to, uh, sell more house show tickets and make more money there. If you have the TV in that market, but you might not be able to run these major markets as profitably unless it's this kind of special once a year sort of deal. Do I have that right, Bruce? No, we, there, there were deals and there were major markets where, we did have a percentage with the television station. They were partners in our promotion to give us X number of ads throughout their programming. And we would give them a percentage of the live events. So that is one thing that incentivized the television stations to take us. And again, it, we, we became an actual syndicated product um, that so, we were charging money for. it, And it was easier. It was more attractive to them to, Okay, we're paying. What what else do we get if we can't sell advertising? We're going to make you a partner in the live event. You make our live event successful, you're going to get a piece of it. So I just said all that, and then you said no. So what was I wrong? Well, about? no, you were wrong about the you know paying the additional hundred fifty thousand dollars or what have you. They may have earned one hundred fifty thousand dollars throughout the year based on the percentages that they got from the live gates. And the I, don't think, I don't think we were paying that kind of money at that time. So 
let's talk about this. WCW was beating the WWF in syndication at this point. They were doing 6.49 million homes on 184 stations and compare that to the WWF's 3.92 million on 155 stations. I don't know why that shocked me considering WCW was a TV company, but it did. Were you guys internally trying to keep score with those syndication numbers at the time? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Somewhat, but at the, at the same time, they had, they had great deals because of who they were, because they were Turner. Right. So they were able to get their programming in a lot of places that we couldn't. So yeah, they, they, they had a lot more clearance, but Vince was more interested. Vince was more interested in being profitable than at that point, because profitable is better. Well, and that's a weird thing too, to talk about WCW kind of ruling syndication because once upon a time when it was Crockett, Crockett just relied on TBS and the superstation and their dominance in cable, but the WWF was making their hay in syndication. And now that's kind of switched around a little bit. According to the observer, the WWF felt like even after removing this compensation plan, they were still going to net more than a hundred stations who would carry the show. But there was some concern internally that they would risk losing major markets like New York and LA. How big of a concern was it when you guys did actually lose New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles? Was anybody panicking about losing those markets? Yes, because we had always been there. And it wasn't it wasn't panic. It was definitely concern. The Vince, man, drawing a line in the sand. It's by God you're gonna do this or we're we're out of here. Um and he would, you know, they would call his bluff and he would leave and go on. So it, it was, yeah, there was a lot of concern and people were saying, well, let's, let's just focus on cable where we're reaching the company. I mean, the entire country and buy local spots, it would be the same. And Vince just felt, um, and there were people, Joe Perkins, Joe Perkins was a gentleman that sold the syndication and had been with Vince and his dad forever and a day. Joe just felt that you had to have syndication. You had to have local television wherever we went. And that was the way business was done. To show how much the business had changed from the heyday, I guess the late eighties, the biggest boom in the history up to that point. At that time, they were running nearly a thousand house shows a year. And here in 96, they're going to run less than 175. Bruce, when do you remember noticing that the schedule had lightened up so much? Was there like an aha moment? Like, holy crap, we're not doing nearly what we I would have to go back and look at my books, but yeah, it was an aha moment from, 
you've seen my booking books, big, large ledger books from drawing three lines in it to have place for three shows and the cards for three shows to drawing one line and having one show a night and just having all this, all this room at the bottom with nothing in it. (laughs) And I would fill it with, with different notes and things like that. But it was right about this time that we went from three shows to two shows to we're running a show. But business is still up. Let's run through it. If you take the average attendance in June of 95, it's 3000 folks. Average attendance in June of 96 is 5,028. Um, the average gate went from $45,860 in June of 95 to $82,266 in June of 96. Um, it's a pretty big deal that you guys were able, you know, to bring in that kind of business. And especially at a time when pay-per-view is seemingly down, um, let's keep going. I want to talk about this and I don't know when we'll talk about him again. So we'll do it right here. It's in the observer around this time that Herb Abrams, who started the universal wrestling federation in 89 passed away from cardiac failure in what was reported by the New York post as an apparent drug overdose. Meltzer wrote Abrams, who was 41 stopped breathing after being handcuffed by police in his seven pin plaza in Manhattan. After he was going on a spree, bashing up furniture on several floors of the building with a baseball bat and pulling on fire alarms at around 6 a.m. He was taken to St. Vincent's hospital and was declared dead at around 7:30 a.m. Police were called about an emotionally disturbed person and arrived at 6:10 to find Abrams naked, covered with baby oil, and two women at his office. Uh, prior to this, uh, he had been arrested many times and had warrants for skipping out on unpaid bills. He had a reputation for stiffing a lot of the boys, and he'd also been popped for drugs, trespassing, and even attempting to rape women with cocaine in his system inside of his office. Uh, once upon a time, he promoted a live cable special called the Blackjack Brawl in a 17,000-seat Vegas arena with a bunch of guys, including Dr. Death, Steve Williams, Sid Vicious, Dan Spivey, Johnny Ace, Missy Hyatt, Bob Orton, Cactus Jack, and even Jimmy Snuka. Uh, Inside this 17,000-seat arena, he drew 228. Uh, When he died, he was working on sending guys to Mexico for a tour, and Todd Pettengill of the WWF was on his WPLJ radio show and kind of making fun of Herb in the way he passed away in this whole story about his death. An interesting guy, to say the least. Bruce, you got any good Abram stories you can share with us? I never had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Abrams. Uh, sounds like a hell of a party animal. Seems like you're kind of guy. I don't know about the tidy whities Hypothetically speaking, tidy whities he was naked in baby oil. No, he was in underwear. He was in, uh, he was in fruit of the loom underwear. Tidy oh, whities So you know the whole story. That's what I've heard. Yeah. So, um, hypothetically speaking, if Johnny Ace was going to describe this scene. Cause they're obviously boys. They work the blackjack brawl together. How would Johnny Ace describe this scene? Hey boss, you sure do look oily tonight. Uh, your arms look massive as well. Not as massive as yours though, Vince. Good God. You're handsome. Uh, the observer reported that the original plan for the September 96 in your house pay-per-view from Philadelphia was a double main event of Shawn Michaels and Jose Lothario taking on Davey Boy Smith and Jim Cornette with an IC title match planned to be Ahmed Johnson and Big Van Vader. 
Of course, none of this happened. Can you confirm that before the injury bug, that was the original plan? May, it may have been. Yeah, I don't have my book in front of me, but yeah, that sounds like something we would have done. It comes out in the Observer that Jake Roberts is going to be back on the road and all the stories that were circulating as to what kept him out of action were swirling, but he couldn't confirm anything. Did you guys ever get to the bottom of it, or was it just Jake being Jake? Jake being Jake, and, and it was... Unfortunately, at that time and, and through a lot of those periods with Jake, that's the only way you could describe it to people. It's Jake being Jake. Rough times. So we've talked a little bit about um, Vader and this situation for SummerSlam 96 in the archives. The Vader episode was one of our first really, really in-depth episodes. So if you'd like to hear more about Vader and his run, and specifically this time in the WWF, I can't recommend that episode enough. It's one of the first ones we went really, really deep. Uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about Jim Cornette here. This is straight from the Observer. There is, or at least was, tremendous heat on Jim Cornette coming off the weekend tour, largely due to a backstage argument he had with Shawn Michaels after the match in Anaheim. Apparently, they had worked out a spot where Michaels was going to superkick Cornette, but Cornette either tripped and fell down, and Michaels superkicked air, or I guess Michaels felt Cornette double-crossed him on the spot. There were problems already between the two, stemming from something that apparently happened after the show in San Francisco. Anyway, after they went behind the curtain in Anaheim, Michaels immediately began yelling at Cornette about the spot, and Cornette began yelling back, and it became a really big deal internally. Now, I want to talk about this, Bruce, because it feels like Shawn Michaels was the golden boy and could do no wrong. And Cornette was the office and he quote unquote should have known better. Would that be Vince's take on this at the time? And, and where did the heat come from on this? I think that there was just bad feelings between, you know, Sean at that time was the difficult boy to work with. That was his perception. And Sean could be difficult. Cornette old school, didn't like the click, didn't like Sean, didn't like um, a lot of the things that he did. So, you know, Corny was going to, not shy away from everything, but yes, I would say that Vince kind of looked at it as, you know, Sean's golden boy and corny. You should have known better. Uh, do you, did you see this match? Did you see the spot? Did you hear about it? I heard about the blow up. I, I did not see, didn't see the argument. Didn't, didn't see the spot to be able to tell you one way or another, what I think might've happened. Have no idea. Um, just heard that Sean and Cornette got into it and it's, that becomes a conversation of corny. What happened? Right. God damn, I'm going to kill a motherfucker. Son of a bitch. Excuse me of shit. I forget more about anything. He'll ever know. Um, and just saying, Jim, you got to control yourself and bite your tongue and move on. So that I don't remember it being that big of a deal. It probably was blown up a lot more in the dirt sheet than it actually ever was. I keep waiting on the motherfucker. All right. So Clarence Mason. Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't wait for you to talk. I mean, fucker. <laughs> That's amazing. God damn. Talk. God damn it. Clarence Mason is uh, going to be coming in to me. I got you tickled on that oh, one. Oh, I'm sorry. That's oh, how you you're waiting for me. I'm waiting for you. Equal housing lender. 
motherfucker. Thank you. Uh, Clarence Mason will be coming in as a regular manager for Crutch. Um, and Meltzer wrote, Mason is obviously not. We, we his, make each other laugh, folks. Sorry. Mason is obviously not his real name. And he's a former assistant DA in real life from somewhere in Florida who was a big wrestling fan who became friends with Ernie Ladd, who made the connection with the WWF with him. Any Clarence Mason stories you can share with us? Oh, me, oh, my. Clarence Mason. Uh, the big cat on the lad. You got to listen to this man. He's a very bright attorney. He could be a great spokesman for somebody, Vinnie Mac. Ernie Ladd didn't actually call Vinnie Mac Vinnie Mac, but I like the way that it sounds when Ernie Ladd says that the man's a genius. He fired my ass. There probably are. Uh, Clarence, Clarence took the business way too seriously, and I think that Clarence kind of worked himself into a shoot by thinking that uh, maybe he could offer his real life attorney services to some of these guys and the boys might have gone to Clarence uh, to try and get some free legal advice and different things and it was it was just funny outsider looking in so the Iron Sheik is going to be brought back for the tapings here and he's going to be a coach as opposed to a manager and he's doing this with Fatu who's had his head shaved and was told to lose a lot of weight to be introduced as a new character from the Middle East. Uh, of course, we know that would be the Sultan. Um, Meltzer wrote, they will probably acknowledge that the new guy was Fatu, similar to why Jerry Lawler mentioned Ron Naaman's once on Raw last week. The idea behind this is by saying who it is once, you aren't insulting the intelligence of the fans who figure it out, but not to dwell on it either. Sheik was under the impression he'll be given a major push and it'll be a hot deal because they are using him to exploit the heat from recent terrorist activities all over the news. Lots to talk about here, Bruce. Uh, do you remember how the convo goes to pitch the Sultan? This feels like, uh, not the same career as Rikishi that we know and love. <laughs> Vince had a vision of a Middle Eastern, I don't want to say, use the word terrorist, but a torture expert. And what better consultant coach than the Iron Sheik to bring this torture to light? Okay. And he just, he saw Junior Fatu as somebody that could pull this off and felt that if he, he hit his face and, and shaved his head that Vince didn't think anybody would mistake him for Fatu. Vince just didn't see it and, and had no intention. Of, I don't ever remember ever discussing saying that it was Fatu. Um, let's talk about the, what's reported here. I can't believe this is real specifically trying to exploit terrorist activities. Is there a conversation like that about, oh, man, there was a bombing. Let's get Iron Sheik on the phone. No, not specifically. It's just when you look around and you see the state of the world, like I'm to give you an, an idea of the mindset in the wrestling business at one time that we would have a North Korean is a top heel right now if if this was 1970, 1980, even probably 1990, um, that's 
that was traditionally what you did. You mirrored what was going on in the world, and the bad guys were the Russians, and the bad guys were the Japanese. So you made them heels, and you had your strong American babyface to go out and uh, conquer them. So that was just the way the business was. The Bruise Brothers are also going to be returning. Uh, they're going to be like the Freddie Joe Floyd, T.L. Hopper, et cetera, version of uh, the tag teams. And it was reported in the Observer that the WWF encouraged them to continue with ECW, but Heyman didn't want anyone who was losing on WWF TV. Um, Bruce, who's your favorite Nazi in wrestling, and why is it one of the Bruce brothers? Uh, neither. Um, my favorite Nazi was a guy by the name of Hans Schroeder. Um, they're really that was Leilani Kai's husband, by the way. A little trivia. Starting to push a Bret Hart return uh, in the television commentary. And you've told us before that you didn't know he was coming back until October. So if you didn't know he was coming back, why mention him so much here to try to put the pressure on him or assume you didn't want to ignore it. And you definitely wanted to talk about him and, and (laughs) and put that seat out there and hope that it was all going to work. The idea at that time was having come back with Steve. He, um, he still plans to work the South African tour and he's going to film a television show called Sinbad. And they had dates from the September 8th to September 12th for him in South Africa. And he had agreed to it several months prior to this because it was a part of the world he'd never been to and wanted to see. And he knew that he'd be, you know, the top attraction on the tour with Shawn Michaels still back here in the States doing the domestic shows. I find this interesting because it feels like he's kind of one foot in one foot out. And that feels like something that. Vince is concerned with too, because there's a rumor that Vince actually flew to Calgary to work out a deal and even talk about what the storyline would be with Brett for a return. Is that true? I believe Vince did make a trip out to Calgary at some point just to talk to Brett and try to find out what really to get a feel for what Brett wanted to do and where Brett's head really was. Meltzer would write that at this point, Brett is probably in the most enviable bargaining position in the history of the business. Because he's a free agent, his WWF deal had expired months ago. Both companies are doing well. WCW is making a big offer, including movies. And at 39, it feels like a chance for Brett to work on life after wrestling. And supposedly, Vince had pitched Brett on making an announcement on pay-per-view that he was retiring and actually teased that to sell some pay-per-views, but then immediately set up an angle for a return against Steve Austin. And then of course, a rematch against Sean, where he would go over at 13. And as a reminder, Brett had been with the company since like late 84, when Vince bought out Stu's stampede wrestling, he's got family members, obviously who are employed with the company and his longtime business manager, Carl DeMarco is working in the Canadian office for the WWF. So there's lots of, uh, ties to the WWF. Did Vince feel like he needed to leverage all of that stuff and push all his chips in and go all in on Brett to get him to resign here? I think he did. I I think Brett, uh, I mean, I beg your pardon. I think that Vince did not want to lose Brett to WCW at this, this timeframe. Let me ask this. Do you think that Vince would have felt so strongly and would have pushed so hard had the NWO 
not been where they were. Meaning if Nash hadn't left and he's still there and Razor hadn't left and he's still there, the NWO is not a thing. Do you think that Brett would have been as valuable to Vince McMahon? Or at that point, is some of the value for Vince? Jesus, just don't let WCW get him too. I think that it would have been a completely different situation had uh, Razor and Diesel stayed. And there probably wouldn't have been that big of a push for Brett. There would have been a push for Brett out of loyalty, but I don't think it would have been as big as it was. Right. Vince did not want to lose another major star. Well, somebody that Vince was okay with losing is the ultimate warrior. They officially severed all ties and the warrior comic book is now dead. Uh, at least from the WWE perspective, but what was your favorite class in the warrior university? Oh, uh, that was the subject of destrucity. D is for dipshit. E is for eccentric. S is for shithead. T is for turd head. Uh, R is for, uh, rectum, rectum. Um, R U is for butthole. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and trucity is for each hit. Uh, Vader is said to be in the 360 pound range here down from four ten. How closely at this point were you guys monitoring Leon's weight? Well, when it was ballooning up, it, it you know, it's kind of hard not to notice it, but it was, it wasn't at the point where it got to where he was sent to Duke university eventually, but it was definitely something that was being seen. Sure. Couldn't ignore it. Um, Meltzer would write that buddy Landale probably wouldn't be able to wrestle after blowing out his knee. Uh, he had slipped on some ice last winter. And now he was going to be out until January or February. What were the plans for Buddy Landale? I don't remember him doing much here. There were no plans for Buddy Landale. Buddy had come in uh, with the Smoky Mountain guys. Right. And was working for Jim Cornette at the time. And we were taking a look at Buddy. I've always, I, you know, rest in, rest in peace, Buddy. But I'd always been a big fan of Buddy since I first met him. Uh, back in San Antonio, but there was something missing with buddy. And in my opinion, I just think it was when he started the nature boy deal, there was only one nature boy at that time. That was Rick Flair and Rick, you know, before that there was buddy Rogers. Rick did it as well, if not better than buddy Rogers, buddy Landell did not do it better than Rick Flair. Right. So it, it just, I think he was stuck in that wanting to be the nature boy. Uh, rumors are flying around regarding two cold Scorpio, but nothing confirmed. That's right out of the observer. Of course, it wouldn't be long and two cold Scorpio would be in the company and he would be positioned as flash funk. Um, who was high on Scorpio and who the fuck thought of flash funk? Jim Ross was high on Scorpio. Vader was high on Scorpio. Vader and Scorpio were longtime friends and had uh, traveled in Japan, both from Denver, or both lived in Denver. And Vince just looked at him and saw Flash Funk. He's so funky. I mean, isn't that what you see when you see Scorpio? Okay. Uh, here's something I had never He's heard. He's going to have women and they're going to dance. And they're going to jump rope. Uh, Ron Simmons was working as a warehouse manager for a Coca-Cola plant, uh, near Atlanta since his last wrestling foray. WCW was interested in bringing him back last November with a three ring battle Royal pay-per-view. 
but sides didn't agree on money. I had never heard this before. I read it this week in the observer. Catch me out, Bruce. How, how did you guys miss this? We've talked about him before, and you said that you would call him every day at the same time and try to sign him. But there for a little while, he just takes a break from wrestling and wanders off into the real world. Yep. He didn't want, he didn't want to sign with anybody. He wanted to walk away and he had a real job with a real pension, with real insurance. He had a family and Ron was looking, in my opinion, I think Ron was looking to get out of the business. I think that Ron was kind of waiting for WCW to come back to him. It was an Atlanta boy. Uh, he was set there. Timing's everything. And I, I kept on him. I just, just kept on him. Ron, you sure you're not going to reconsider and got him at the right time where he may have been not altogether pleased being at that Coca-Cola factory and agreed to meet with us. And Vince had an idea. Vince had this, this Farouk idea for him. It's crazy to me to think about four years prior to this, he's the world champion. And now he's like, man, screw this. I'm going to Coca-Cola. How many other guys dip off into the real world when they're between companies, especially in this era? I mean, you hear more about it now, I guess, because there's really no number two, but the guys really dip off like that. Was that pretty common? It feels really, really rare to me. It, it, dep- it probably depends on, on the individual and their, their own confidence. There are guys that are in the wrestling business that know nothing else and can do nothing else. Right. So they're, they're not going to look out in the real world. Ron had an opportunity in the real world to, to get a job with, like I said, with that insurance. And that was something that was important. And that was something that was important to Bobby Heenan. That's why Bobby Heenan went to WCW was to have insurance for his family. Um, John Layfield did it. John, you know, walked away and left the business altogether and, and did his whole financial advisory group. There are some guys that have done it, but they all, you know, it's like the mafia, man. You just get, <laughs> just pull you back in. During this time, we're right in the middle of the WWF suing WCW for Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Um, of course, TBS, WCW, Eric Bischoff. And they're all scheduled to go to trial in New Haven, Connecticut on August 19th. But there were a lot of rumors that it wouldn't get that far. And you guys had allegedly already started to depose Hall and Nash. Any memories of how this is going down? I I find, I bring this up because around the same time, it comes out that, uh, there's a lot of heat within WCW because somebody in the office leaked to the WWF and they were able to discover inner office memos where Hall and Nash were referred to by their Titan names on, uh, on WCW letterhead. So that was obviously a critical part of the case. Well, not only that, they had also on their television run sheets, they had referred to, you know, razor coming down through the crowd. Razor says this razor does that. And they, their argument was they being WCW was that they were not portraying these talent as former WWF stars, that they were just introducing new stars and weren't trying to play off of their WWF, um, names and and reputation, but yet on their own run sheets, they referred to them as their WWF names. So that was, that was a big contention. And when we saw all the inner office references back and forth, not to mention the 
when they subpoenaed their television run sheets, they saw all of that was there um, on the run sheets. So I didn't, I thank God I wasn't deposed for that particular lawsuit, nor did I have anything to do with that one. That was the uh, one I luckily got away from. Well, unfortunately, one, two, three kid was caught in the middle. He was set to debut for WCW, but at the 11th hour, you guys added him to the lawsuit saying his likeness couldn't be on WCW TV. Uh, and this is in a time when there's a war. So it's always been interesting to me that you guys let such a talented performer just get away, but then stop him from working after you release him. Can you explain this to me? Well, when you say talented performer, he was a talented performer, but he was also a pain in the ass backstage at that time too. So he was disruptive and making noise that he didn't want to be there. Vince didn't want unhappy people around him. Go ahead and, and get rid of him. Felt that he would go let him be disruptive there. Um, but at the same time, then it's like, well, wait a minute. If it's going to help them, then why should we make it easy for them to use talent that we've already established? And, and that's just business. Um, it, Meltzer would write the next week. It appears whatever problems there were with Jim Cornette and Shawn Michaels have at least on the surface blown over. All right, there you go. Motherfucker. <laughs> Somebody probably needed to send uh, Chris Candido some flowers after he cracked a vertebrae, a vertebrae, easy for me to say at Madison square garden. It was a freak accident on August 9th. And that explains why he was in the neck brace here at SummerSlam and not doing much on the show. Uh, apparently he fractured the fifth cervical vertebrae and the doctors also found two fractured lumbar vertebrae that he'd been working with for a few months and didn't even realize it. Any memories of that injury? Were you there? I was there actually. And it, it was just. Chris coming back and, and his neck was injured, went and got checked out. I think it was more of an accumulation right. of everything uh, on down the line in that particular night, kind of jarred it and reared its ugly head. But we wanted to be safe and, and not have Chris do anything in the match. A Brian Pillman ticking Tom bomb segment was filmed with uh, Sean Michaels and it was scheduled to air on raw, but it was pulled from the show because they weren't happy with how it turned out. And, uh, it was replaced by a new Sean Michaels interview. Apparently he walked off the set. Sean was not pleased with it either. Did Sean like Brian Pillman? Do you have any memories of this? Was this a good segment and Sean just being a prima donna or what do you recall? Those ticking time bomb segments with Pillman were unpredictable at best. And Brian would go off script and Brian would, (laughs) would be Brian. So it just didn't, it didn't work. And Sean, Sean wasn't feeling it. Nobody was. And it wasn't Sean being a prick. The the segment went nowhere. It was not good. And we decided not to use it. We decided once they had gotten into it, they were oil and water and it wasn't going to work. We could have gone out and redone it and aired it, but it just wasn't going to work. So skip next. At the same Madison Square Garden show where Candido hurt his neck, Jim Ross does an interview with Mark Henry, and this is the first time that Mark Henry is introduced to the New York crowd. Of course, Helmsley comes out, tries to get the heat, and Mark winds up shoving him down. The fans are chanting USA, but there's also people who are really on Mark. Jim Ross is introducing him as the world's strongest man, and apparently there's some people in the crowd who realize he finished 14th in the Olympics. So they start a bullshit chant. 
Uh, and this is unfortunate because Mark Henry has been a wrestling fan his entire life. Uh, and he's clearly got a deal here. The WWF has sponsored his training for the Olympics and they put him on a 10 year deal at a quarter million dollars a year. Um, Meltzer would talk about that and say that a lot of the high level wrestlers are getting those 250 per year downside guarantees. But his advice is anyone over 35 should take a long-term deal. But if you're younger than that, you should look at a two-year deal because the income opportunities in wrestling are surely going to be in the rise in the coming years. Did Mark have a lot of heat for coming in with that deal? And is that why people fed in the doo-doo sandwiches? Mark had a lot of heat for a lot of reasons. Mark came in kind of big dogging himself as, uh, like he was already one of the boys before he'd earned his stripes and the, the hype of being the world's strongest man, which by the way, even though he did not compete in the Olympics, he still was listed as, as the world's strongest man. That's how that moniker is derived is they take all your lifts and they have this contest and they add up all your lifts and whoever lifts the most weight with the combined lifts of all these lifts gets the moniker world's strongest man. Mark Henry truly was the world's strongest man at that time and and was for many, many years. I don't know who the hell is now, but Mark's strong son of a gun. Uh, He hurt his knee, did not compete in the Olympics. And a lot of people poo-pooed that and felt that that was kind of a bullshit thing and that uh, Mark didn't, you know, didn't do anything to get where he was. And there was, just, there was just a lot of heat from a lot of you know, rumor and innuendo, everybody you know, thinking that they knew what his deal was and felt that it was undeserving for a guy coming in off the street, how they looked at it. Vince looked at it as he's the world's strongest man. He's a United States Olympian and that the upside would outweigh any negativity. Um, speaking of negativity, uh, that same Madison square garden show, the music guy accidentally cut off Shawn Michaels ring entrance music and Michaels being the perfectionist. He is starts swearing up and down in the ring and, uh, well, acting kind of unprofessional. How common was this behavior in 1996 for Shawn Michaels? Pretty common. Sean, Sean didn't have a problem showing his ass. What, what's, what's he, the- he, you know, you, you go back and then we'll talk about it in the match. Um, even more so, but if he was displeased with something, yeah, he would go right into a hard camera on the floor and, and let everybody know, send Vince or Kevin or whoever a message that way. Or, um, he could throw some temper tantrums at times. The bruise brothers got crew cuts for their new reappearance here. Um, and Meltzer says he didn't know what their new gimmick would be. And, and you can't make this up. Um, was having them become skinheads a rib or did Vince drive them to joining the SS with the haircut here? Well, that's just fucked up. What? No, they, is this when they came in as DOA? No, this was a little before. I think they were just regular Nazis here. Shoot Nazis. No, they were not shoot Nazis. <laughs> they were just, uh, the, they were the Harris twins. I, I honestly don't remember. I didn't think that we cut their hair until we, they shaved their heads. I don't remember that. I don't remember them being in crew cuts. Uh, Duke Drose, uh, has quit the promotion and works some Indies in Florida, but is planning on going to law school in the fall. Somehow <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Does it? This has got to be a rib. What do you remember about the end of Duke, the dumpster? 
Duke was a great guy. Um, loved the business. He was missing it. He got the garbage man gimmick from Vince because he looked like a garbage man to Vince and felt that everybody could relate to the friendly dumpster guy. So Duke was, was stuck with, with that moniker. Um, again, really, really nice guy, but he got in some you know bad trouble later on after he got out of the business. The business wasn't for him. He was, in my opinion, he was too nice to be in the wrestling business. Um, but it, it just didn't click with him in, in any way, shape, or form. Big guy, had the size, had, had a look, but there was just something missing. Well, uh, there was not something missing from this idea. It was reported in the Observer that you guys were kicking around doing a weekly Saturday night pay-per-view. The idea would be that it would emanate from New York, and it would happen at midnight every night with a price tag of nine ninety-five. Uh, they wanted to aim it more at an adult audience, sort of like ECW. And Meltzer wrote, the show has been proposed to both request and viewer's choice within the past week. And the reports are that neither company was leaning towards accepting the proposal, which means that the WWF would be left with a show that they would have to market cable company by cable company. Uh, and then the total universe would be far less than it has with its current pay-per-view shows. And it would make the idea much more of a financial risk. Um, but they're saying they still want to press forward with this and the Vince has kind of greenlit it and they want to start this as soon as possible, even October, but others say that's unrealistic. And the idea here is to push the envelope further than they could on USA and promote it as more raw than raw. And depending on the, the setup they have, as far as the way they light it and rig it and all that Meltzer guesses that the break even for something like this would be between 62 and 70,000 weekly buys. What can you tell us about the genesis of shotgun Saturday night? I know we're going to get into it on, on another time. We've had it on the poll several times, but since it looks like it's never going to win, I figure I would ask here, was it originally supposed to be a weekly pay-per-view for 10 bucks? Well, I think that the timing of shotgun Saturday night and the timing of Vince floating out the idea of a weekly pay-per-view um, just getting the temperature of cable companies and seeing if there would be any interest and if there would be any kind of pushback, the Genesis Saturday night's main event, that's what it was. And it was always kind of supposed to be a live television show. And maybe that's where Meltzer got his facts confused as he often does. It may have been, it may have been a guy that was going in to pay his cable bill and heard uh, one of the cable operators talking about it because her husband worked in the main office and a janitor walked by that day and said that he heard that. So it's probably from a really good source like that. Well, I find it interesting that this idea was floated here in, in 1996. And of course, this is exactly what TNA would do. What? Six years after this weekly pay-per-views for 10 bucks. Yeah, they sure did. Cool. On Wednesday, on what Wednesday nights? Yeah. As opposed to yeah. Saturday. Uh, around this time, raw is going to be preempted for two weeks for tennis. How badly does this annoy Vince to be preempted by tennis? Words can't begin to describe the hatred for, uh, <laughs> for tennis on USA 
at times. It, it's second only to the Westminster Dog Show. It was very, it was very irritating because we were consistently bringing USA the best numbers of anything on their network, but yet we would still be preempted for dogs and tennis. Uh, let's talk about the pay-per-view. Um, I find it interesting that this pay-per-view, while it didn't do huge numbers, I guess we should go ahead and tell you that, uh, the 1995 SummerSlam did 205,000 buys 1994 did 300. So we go from 394 down to just 205 for 95. We're all the way down to 157 here for the 96 SummerSlam. Uh, but it wasn't reviewed that poorly, I guess. Uh, it only got 47.7% thumbs down, 29.1% thumbs up. And surprisingly, the best match on the card is Shawn Michaels and Vader. The worst match on the card, of course, according to the Observer uh, and their fans, their reader poll, is Lawler and Jake Roberts. Uh, I didn't think this was the horrible show that a lot of the readers did, but I will admit when I watched it back this week, it didn't necessarily stand up the way it did when I was a 15 year old watching it. What'd you think of the show when you watched it back this week, Bruce? Slow. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It felt, especially we've been doing a lot of show-oriented shows, duh, and going back and watching some of the old events, I would get excited, man. I'd sit there and go, wow, these are so much better than I remember. And before I could even think about it, I was, I was done. So watching this one, it was, it wasn't hard to watch. It wasn't painful to watch. It just felt like it was in slow motion. The, the overall feel of the show to me, um, that's, and that's in hindsight, but, um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be too, when I looked at it on paper again and, and watching, I went, ah, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. This is a state record, uh, for the house. It's the second biggest of the year for the WWF topping 413,000 on a paid attendance of 14,926. There's more than 17,000 in attendance and the building was set up for just under 20,000. You guys have to be thrilled with that, right? Very much so. Uh, the announcing, of course, was done by Vince McMahon, Jim Ross, and Kurt Henning. Uh, Meltzer was pretty critical of Kurt Henning's commentary, saying that he should be referred to as Mr. Perfectly Useless. How do you think Perfect did on color here? I thought that Kurt did not do a bad job here, frankly. And it's, it's a tough to do a three-man booth, but I thought Kurt, Kurt was good. Kurt was in the role of Bruno San Martino. Kind of an, an, an analyst. 
in our first match, which aired on the free for all, which was a way you could kind of see what the pay-per-view setup looked like. They would do the hard sell for the pay-per-view and they would give you one free match and lots of promos for the actual main card. Uh, and they did this on a lot of cable systems on that show, the free for all, we see Steve Austin pin Yokozuna in a minute and 52 when Yoko goes up for the bonsai, but the gimmicked ring ropes break and he falls, uh, back into the ring and was pinned. Uh, Meltzer would say the reverse camera angle on the replay clearly showed Yokozuna pulling the gimmick turnbuckle apart. So the ropes would collapse. He rated it a dud. I got to tell you, Bruce, as a kid, I love this a lot. Whose idea was this finish? <laughs> Probably Vince McMahon's, but it comes it comes from a real life situation that happened with Yoko going up to the uh, second rope and he balances himself on the top rope and he was bouncing and he was holding on to the top rope to steady himself and the rope broke. So it was something that had actually happened that we put into a finish. Well, I thought it was awesome. Uh, obviously, you so guys I. are struggling with, with Yokozuna's weight, and you're not necessarily happy with it. But I thought it was a cool way to finish it, and it was a nice little fun surprise for a free-for-all like that to remind you that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation. Um, Damn right. Let's talk about Austin here. The narrative for a long time has been that he cuts this Austin 316 promo, and then you guys strap the rocket to his ass. And he's off to the races and he's main eventing and it's over like Rover. But he's on the damn free for all here for the second biggest show of the year. It's just two months after that promo. What's up with that? We knew where we were going. We're biding our time. Where are you going? Well, we were at the time we were going with Brett. We were going with Brett to go to Survivor Series in November. Um, and that that was the idea behind it at that time. Brett's not even signed. Yeah, we still, that was what we hope. We, we Look, there was those of us, me in particular, that didn't know what the hell Brett was going to do. And I always erred on the side of the guy's not signed. I don't want to count on him. I don't want to write based on, well, I feel good about this. Vince, that's what we're going to do. And Vince felt confident that it would happen and, and wouldn't wouldn't accept the like Lex Luger and, and when Lex didn't sign, no, nope, he's with us. Vince just took guys at their at face value. Yeah. Um, they air a, uh, an interview on the free for all with undertaker and Paul bear. And you can sort of see the seeds of Paul Barry during a very subtle tease of, a of a heel turn. Uh, and then they show us the beach party deal. And this was promoted as a little bit of a bikini contest, but it's not actually a contest here. Um, but it is built around seeing Sable, Marlena and Sonny in their bikinis. And you have the faces and the heels mixed together here. Did you have a problem with that at the time? It feels like this was kind of out of the ordinary for you guys. I did. Yes, I did. Just, yes, I did. Um, but not nearly as much as Jim. God damn, they're fucking baby faces and heels. They got to kill each other if they're in the same goddamn zip code and they know where the other one lives. Um, Vince had no problem with it. Vince thought that it was, you know, people, people know and people understand that they're not in a, a combative atmosphere. They're not in a contest. They're not in a contest, pal. Why would they just start fighting? Because they're heels and baby faces and that's what they do. 
Um, it was weird. It was weird for, for this. And there was, there was another time in the show that, it, that they did it uh, when they were all painting a house and doing stuff. It just felt funny to me. And, and this was really the first time you guys pushed the envelope with the bikinis. Uh, and if you have pics from this, feel free to tag me on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to see them shit. So it's that, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Now my mom's on Facebook. So let's spare her Sony's B hole, please. Twitter only. Uh, hey, Hey, it's Conrad. You've been uh, pooning lately. Come at I know you sitting there. You get that, you know, sometimes you get that little smile on your face and you kind of like looking around like did anybody, anybody else hear that? Anybody see me lift my little left cheek? And I know you've been pooping over there because that's what you do sometimes. Hypothetically, uh, if Sonny lived in Russia, who would she vote for? Putin. Uh, the highlight is that nobody would get in the pool here at SummerSlam except Jerry Lawler. And what's scaring everybody away is there's a turd floating around in the pool. Well, thankfully, Teal Hopper is there to not only retrieve said turd, but eat it as well. So the real oh, yeah. question here is, did Teal not know that Mark Henry was in the building? I mean, dude, snacks are Henry's gimmick, right? Well, he's a plumber. Got to do some plumbing. <laughs> you go take this right here. He's got nuts and everything in it. So mm. are you saying that Michael Hayes suggested that TL eat the doot, doot, doot out of the pool? Doot, doot, doot. Mmm, nutty. There's a little corn there, too. First match, Owen Hart beat Savio Vega in about 13 and a half minutes. Uh, Owen is still sporting his cast from the never-ending arm injury. Uh, the crowd even chants Owen early on. They clearly see him as a star. He's a crowd favorite, even though he's a heel. Uh, Jim Cornette is not here because he is in the back working in the dressing room with Vader. So Clarence Mason comes out and they tease a little bit of a breakup here. Uh, Hart then hits Vega with the cast, knocks him out, puts the sharpshooter on with Vega out. The ref stops the match. Uh, after the match, Justin, um, Bradshaw shows up and uncle Zeb comes out and they call Vega a Puerto Rican dog and said, they're going to send him back to the Island. So then Bradshaw attacks Vega from behind in the aisle and he is helped out by the ring officials, two and a half stars. I'm a little disappointed in this match. I felt like Owen and Savio probably could have had a better match for whatever reason. They didn't click in my opinion. What'd you think? I thought it was slow. Um, it wasn't a bad match. It was slow to me. The highlight of the match was going back and watching Vader do butterflies with the dumbbells and having Jim Cornette encourage him as if Corny knew what the hell to tell Vader to do with those dumbbells. Like if Corny even knew what the hell a dumbbell was, do that, yeah, more like that. Make your titties move, Leon. I like it. You're starting to get frothy, so I know it's working. One of the things that stood out to me is when they're talking about the referee in the match, uh, they all refer to him as that official and the official and never the referee's name. Was that a weird Vincism? Like he doesn't like hospital. He likes medical facility and he doesn't like belt. He likes title. Did he have some sort of weird thing about, we don't need to know the referee's name. Just say that official or the official. They're the official. They're not a referee. They're the official of the match. Nobody cares about the official. They're not people. Damn it. They're officials. Just another name to remember. Um, the, the little guy in the striped shirt, <laughs> the opening video here, you know, it's themed around monsters for the pay-per-view and, and they they want clearly 
for Sean to overcome the monster Vader. And they push that a lot. And they push the monsters of good and evil for both the undertaker and mankind. Is this a video that David Sahadi would put together or who was doing the videos at this point? I believe that was David Sahadi and it was definitely his style. The buildup was, as I said earlier, it was King Kong versus Godzilla in, in Undertaker versus Mankind. And then it was David and Goliath with Sean and Vader. So you wanted to, to paint these larger-than-life images. Um, I, thought that the, I thought that the opening video was tremendous and, and just kind of chuckled going through the whole thing and, and remembering the whole sequence leading up to SummerSlam. I thought it was some good stuff. Uh, another thing that, that stuck out to me is the guy who does the voiceover here, because this stuff, this voiceover, the guy, whoever you're using here, he had what, like a year or two run with y'all. And I thought he really did a great job. I identify this era of the company with that voiceover guy. Who was it? And why isn't he doing it anymore? It was a voiceover guy out of New York city that used to come in and do our pay-per-view and some of our, uh, tag spots. And that was it. He was, he was from voiceovers are us. I love that voiceovers are us. The, the sponsor of the show is Stridex pads. Uh, how was that partnership? It feels like you guys had a pretty good deal with them because you did it multiple times. I'm curious, um, who, who sells that sponsorship, what those terms look like. I know you're going to tell us money, but is it just for the pay-per-view? Cause I feel like we saw some autograph signings where there were Stridex pads on the table. Uh, why did it make sense? Who sold it? What can you tell us about Stridex? Jim Rothschild was the head of sales in the New York sales office who sold all of the uh, television advertising, but also sold the sponsorships and different things for the pay-per-view events. Stridex was a great sponsor because Stridex, they were looking, they were looking for that, uh, you know, 12 year old teen audience that they felt that we delivered and we were a perfect match for them. So they not only sponsored the pay-per-views, but they also sponsored the television shows and had a lot of ads on there and uh, replays. Now, this replay brought to you by Stridex. Um, next up, we see the smoking guns retain the WWF tag titles. They do this in a four corners elimination match against the new and improved rockers. Uh, which is Marty Jannetty, and instead of Shawn Michaels, of course, it's Al Snow. He's wrestling here as Leaf Cassidy, uh, the Godwins, and the Body Donnas. Skip is wearing that neck brace, and uh, they even acknowledge the injury from Madison Square Garden. He never touches a soul, and uh, your brother does all the heavy lifting. Uh, the finish comes when Phineas uses the slop drop on Billy, but the ref was distracted by Sonny, and he'll be like Jim arguing at ringside. So Bart's able to come off the top on to Phineas and puts Billy on top for the pin. Uh, after the match, Sonny gets on the house mic and is talking about how the guns were what real men were supposed to look like and saying that all these fat, ugly women with cellulite in the audience um, need to see what a real woman looks like. And down comes the huge poster of Sonny from the ceiling. Meltzer gave this match a dud, and I got to say, this was not very good. Uh, I don't know what I expected, but Billy's obviously working hurt. He's got some sort of thumb injury. Uh, obviously, Candido's hurt. And I don't know what it is about the chemistry in this match, but it just didn't seem to work. What do you think? Well, I think that if this match would have been held in the Tokyo Dome, that it would have been eight and nine-tenths uh, stars. 
Okay, that's an old joke now. Do you have a comment about the match? Slow. It was it was not good. No, nobody gelled, and especially when Marty Marty and Al were in there, it was just a mismatch. At least the heavenly bodies had an issue with the Godwins beforehand and the guns. But we, we threw in the the rockers to do the four corner tag. It was an idea that Corny had to, to do it a little bit differently where the champions could essentially lose the titles and, and not escape. Somebody had to win. Um, chemistry, lack thereof in this match, sucked. I like that you just referred to the body donnas as the heavenly bodies. Oh, shit, did I? Yeah, it was pretty fun. Sorry. Oh, um, uh, you know what I meant. Oh, of course. Ooh, Sonny's poster coming down from the front. Whose idea is that? Who pushes for that? Does she still have it hung in her garage? Pro- she probably does have it still hung in her garage. It was Vince's idea, and he uh, just something to kind of punctuate the match and, and get get Sunny over and get more downloads for. Um, I, I actually appreciated one thing about this match, and I don't know. Did you watch this all the way through, or did you fast forward some parts? I watched it all the way through, and I know what I appreciated about the match. All right, me first. I love Leaf Cassidy's entrance. I feel like it's the best in the history of entrances. Uh, if, if you the have, dancing, the dancing, and the dancing in the corner, and the smiling. If you have Off not the chart, if you have not seen this. You should just fast forward to see Leaf Cassidy come to the ring. It is outstanding, and and I do like that they refer to them as the new and improved rockers. I mean, that's that's obviously going for some heat there. I enjoyed it. I thought it was good stuff. It it came from, you know, Vince had this philosophy whenever a new product would come out, or I beg your pardon, an old product would come out, and it would have a, a new formula, and they would always say, you know, new and improved Tide, now with oxidizers. So <laughs> why don't we just have new and improved rockers, now with Leaf Cassidy. So that was the idea. But you you want to know what, what my favorite part of it was? What's that? When the bell rang at the end. Well, you know, there was a, a kind of a fun spot there where, you know, uh, a Godwin and your brother both tag the smoking gun. So now they have to fight each other. That was kind of funny. And then they both did like the Jackie Fargo strut, which was kind of fun. Um, a couple other things that stood out to me in this, for whatever reason, Billy is getting a series of punches from one of the Godwins and the last one of a trilogy of punches misses and Vince tries to cover it up. And he says something like reaching for that one, but nonetheless, the effect is there because Billy sold the shit out of it. Uh, I thought that was phenomenal events because, you know, there's two schools of thought. Do you ignore it or do you address it? Um, I thought Sonny was about as roll tight as roll tight gets here. So beautiful. Uh, hard to beat. I, I like that you guys specifically shot a couple of times an airbrush t-shirt in the front row that says Bischoff sucks. I thought that was fun. I can't imagine somebody actually going and signing up for that, but they did. Uh, and then I enjoyed Sonny bending through the ropes after the match and they do, they're doing the Kevin Dunn got to, got to have more beef shot. And McMahon says something like, Oh, pardon us. Oh my little red panties. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> and then from there, 
Um, let's talk about these little skits that they do because there's lots of these, you know, we'll go back to the promo that everybody wants to hear about. But first I want to talk about this silly race for a silver cup here, uh, where you're taking the rapid transit for the Godwins and they're going to race the smoking guns by horse and buggy to see who can get to SummerSlam the fastest. And we see the Godwins rotting and they're bragging about the air conditioning and the comfortable seats on the way to the beautiful Gund Arena. And tomorrow, when you come to SummerSlam, here's how you need to come. Clearly, we're watching the show. What's the purpose of this? Is this a request from the arena? I mean, this seems way, way out of place. Uh, community participation and be able to have something that shows whenever we do a pay-per-view in your city or town that we are going to talk about the benefits and the positives about your city and promote you in a positive way. And this was something that we had done earlier in the week to promote Cleveland. Gund Arena was a new arena at the time, and they really wanted to be able to sell their transit system and how easy it was to get to the Gund Arena and all the fun things that you could do around the Gund Arena. Had a big mall and a lot of restaurants and everything attached to it. So it was promotion, and it was a way to tell our other partners and have something that we could then take to other arenas and other cities and say, and we're going to promote you on a worldwide basis and show how great your city is to bring tourism back. So that was just to show how involved we are in the community. And you guys did a lot of of promotion here. You show uh, Jerry the King Lawler working with the Indians. You show a lot of the boys, the, the faces and the heels, uh, working what they call paint the town to cover the graffiti. Um, lots and lots of stuff going on here, uh, in the community. Who's organizing all of that? Is this something that Sue, uh, Hutchinson would have put together? Sue, Hutchinson, you mean, uh, Sue Aitchison. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. at this time, this was all Bob Collins, who was the promoter who would go out and do the special events and promote the pay-per-views. Bob Collins, promoter extraordinaire bob was a gentleman in the beard that was holding that beautiful silver prestigious silver cup that the godwins won for the transit uh, challenge challenge um so let's talk about uh the next match we get psycho sid in a match against davy boy smith uh sid is coming out here by himself and he gets a good size pop and he's fist bumping the crowd and talking to himself I know, you know, he, he's not necessarily the most beloved figure on the internet, but this era Sid to me is just awesome. I'm a self-confessed Sid Mark. I thought it was super cool to see him here and how over he was. Uh, and he, and he has a, a passable match, I guess. Uh, Cornette is not with Davy boy Smith. Of course, Cornette is still preoccupied with Vader. So Clarence Mason comes out again for this match and Meltzer would actually say it's better than you might think, but still not a good match. Um, Smith used his power slam on Sid, but instead of going for the pin, he's distracted since Cornette came out and is arguing with Mason. So Smith goes for a second power slam, but Sid gets out and uses the choke slam for the finish one star. Uh, what'd you think of this match? I thought it was better than it deserved to be. I kind of, on paper, I was dreading watching it I kind of watched it looking for the train wreck. I think Sid vicious, uh, invented the fist bump. Because here he's doing it in 1996, long before that was a thing. So every time that you fist bump, know that Sid Vicious invented that. But you're right. Sid looked like a million bucks. Sid was over like Rover. And 
these guys had a decent passable match and we were able to tell the story a little bit with Bulldog and Cornette and uh, Clarence Mason. So I was pleasantly surprised here. It was better. It was better than I thought it would be. Next up, we've got Goldust working with Mark Marrow. Um, it goes about 11 minutes. Meltzer gives it two and a half stars. At some point, uh, mankind comes out and chases Sable around the ring, calling her mommy. She acts all freaked out, screaming, and then mankind runs away from ringside. Marrow does a flip plancha over the top rope uh, and turns it into a leg drop into the ring. And then he debuts his new finisher, which they call the wild thing. But I, I found that kind of funny because instead of calling it the wild thing, Jim Ross refers to it as a shooting star press, which I feel like kind of defeats the purpose of giving the fucking thing a name. Um, but Goldust still wins the match with the curtain call after the match. Goldust acts as if he's going to sexually molest Sable and was scaring her to death when Marrow finally got up and makes the comeback, uh, and basically beats Goldust to the back two and a half or sorry, two and a quarter stars. So here's where you see the pivot from the hot lesbian action. So now Goldust is in pursuit of Sable. Uh, wow. How things change a year later, Goldust is in the chicks chat me up about the match. What'd you think? Uh, I, I kind of thought both of these guys have had better matches for whatever reason. It didn't feel like it clicked as much as I thought it might, because both of these guys at this point had had a string of really good matches. Thank God for mankind. I thought that mankind was the most entertaining part of the match. The, you know, you, you bring up the fact Jr. plugs at the very beginning. Uh, Mark Marrow has a new, uh, new hold, a new maneuver that he is going to debut. He, he calls it the wild thing. He didn't tell us what it was, but uh, said we're going to know it when we see it. And then Merrill does the move. And I guess that's I guess that's the wild thing that he's referring to. Uh, the shooting star press is in his own. I'm like going, ah! And Vince, you know, Vince likes to 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 call holds. It's not the scorpion. It's the sharpshooter. Right. It's whatever name that they come up with that's what it is referred to as so that was kind of you know i'll call it a jrism to, to let everybody know that i know it's a shooting star press but they want to call it a silly name um just takes you out of it for a minute um i i i can't be that kind to this match i did not think it was a good match i thought that gold dust tried but it just kind of in my opinion, just shine a spotlight on that. Marrow was about three steps behind. Uh, next up, we've got, uh, Farouk doing a promo in the middle of the ring this time with Sonny. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but Farouk is dressed like a fucking idiot here. Right. Can you, can we agree on that? No, he was dressed like Farouk. Remind everybody why you put him in this stupid outfit again. Well, because he was balding and Vince wanted to hide the balding head and wanted to put this contraption on his head to make him look younger. You know what? what? It's going to be a contraption. It's going to come down and it'll, it'll look, it almost look like you've got these, these brilliant turquoise sideburns, majestic. What'd you think of, uh, Farouk's, uh, theme music here? Don't even remember it. Uh, you know, all I hear when Farouk comes out are two things, the APA uh, entrance and Nation of Domination. I didn't even notice it. 
Well, uh, our listeners are going to notice it. I'm going to have Matt Coon uh, put it at the end of the show. It's it's something to hear. Um, I guess my big takeaway here, obviously, is that they're talking about an IC tournament. They're talking about, you know, Ahmed Johnson. They're wanting to keep that going. Uh, but, you know, Sonny's here. So I'd just like to comment that Sonny had that wagon. Woo. Um, next up, we get Jerry Lawler and Jake Roberts. They go about four minutes and seven seconds. Meltzer would say this is mainly the Lawler comedy show telling one wino joke after another. He also wore a Baltimore Ravens jersey, which got tremendous heat. Mark Henry was here to do color, although he really didn't say much and was actually laughing at some of Lawler's jokes, which he really wasn't supposed to be doing, although he did act disgusted with Lawler as well. Lawler brought out a giant bottle in a bag as a present for Roberts. Roberts pulled the snake out and chased Lawler with it, and he ran away. Roberts put the snake away, and they finally started the match. Roberts teased the DDT a few times, but it ended with Lawler hitting Roberts in the chest with a bottle and getting the pin. After the match, Lawler poured what was supposed to have been a bottle of whiskey down Roberts' throats and all over his face. When Lawler tried to do it a second time, Henry stopped him. This appears to be setting up Lawler as Henry's first foil, dud. What did you think of the match? I enjoyed the hell out of the match. You know, I think uh, every now and again, Meltzer gets so granular on work rate and moves and high spots and stuff like that, that maybe he overlooks the ideas to get heat and whether you thought that this was a lot of high energy dynamite kid style action, like it or not, it got heat. And I guess we could debate now, was it getting heat for the right reason? But I thought it had heat, right? It, it did. And what I enjoyed about it was it was two old pros that people may argue might have been past their prime, which they were, but they went out and entertained the hell out of me. Um, Lawler's Henny Youngman jokes, eh, maybe a little too much, but the match itself and the story itself entertained me, and they made they made it believable, and they made it fun, and I enjoyed it. So I sat back and I smiled watching it, going damn you know what both of those guys could get in the ring tomorrow and have that match and have it be believable i um i guess the whole wine and beer and champagne and jim beam and jack daniels jokes you know are are fair game here because it's been something that you guys have been doing a series of sit down interviews with Jake Roberts about where he's talking about his struggles with addiction. Did you feel like that was, um, I don't know, maybe not in the best taste at the time or was it, J- or was it Jake's idea? It was Jake's idea. Jake wanted to tell the story and Jake felt that so many people could relate to it, that he, he could help them tell that story. And, and Jake wanted to be, that messenger and Jake wanted to, to send a positive message. Now, whether or not people believed him or not, um, that's up for debate, but the, the angle, um, pretty much everything in it was Jake's idea and him kind of laying out being the architect of everything in that angle and everything in that match. Yeah, it's hard. It's it. I think everybody listening is ready for me to just launch into something where, I don't think it was in good taste, but I feel like we've covered that a lot. You know, that when a guy has real struggles with substance stuff that 
you know, maybe you shouldn't do this, but at the same time, if it's his idea, I mean, it's kind of hard for you to argue, right? And it's also the idea of trying to, you know, trying to send a message. This is, you know, real life and hopefully that they overcome their struggles and that they come out on the, the better end. And in real life now today, where we are in 2017, Jake has come out on the other side and he's had some stumbles, but, um, personally I'm proud as hell of him. And I think that he would look back on, on his life and be glad that he's been able to share the pitfalls and, and rise above it now. Uh, let's talk about, um, the Bob Backlund situation here. He just kind of shows up out of nowhere. Here he gets through the Bob Backlund stuff. Vince had this crazy idea of getting a WWF superstar on the ballot for the president of the United States. Uh, Bob was entertaining running for some kind of local congressman or senator or, or something in Connecticut. And Bob wanted to be that guy. Bob felt that, you know, he, he says, I'll, I'll go run for president. It was a gimmick to try and get Bob Backlund's name on the presidential ballot. Figured if we made enough noise that we could actually get his name on the ballot and put Bob Backlund out there. And Bob took it as serious as could be and could be a little crazy to deal with at times. Well, the, the next match is what a lot of people remember the most about the show. And it was a little crazy, but before we get to it, let's talk about the promo that led up to it. Very early on in the pay-per-view, we see Todd Pettengill go into the boiler room. Um, I'm curious who named it. Whose idea was this a boiler room match? I think it, I think it was Vince McMahon that finally came up with the boiler room brawl. And it was from Cornette and I trying to come up with a, a different environment to hold a match that would be, you know, what could be mankind's match that Undertaker would, would not be at home in. And we wanted to do something different. And we kept talking about the dungeon and where uh, mankind lived and where he would hang out. And that's when we started doing the vignettes with mankind being in the boiler room, which is just kind of what happened when we would shoot vignettes with mankind at TV, we would always go find the boiler room, find the bowels of the building and shoot mankind in there because it always had the best, you know, ominous, dark and ominous feel to it. So the idea was let's put him in, in mankind in his home. And that was the boiler room. That was every building had a boiler room. Every building had the bowels of the building. And Vince dubbed it the boiler room brawl. Um, this promo that he does on the back before the match, it's early in the pay-per-view. It's phenomenal. If you haven't seen this, this is some of the best mankind stuff, uh, especially at the time, but Todd Pettengill, Lord bless him. He didn't sell it nearly as good as Foley does. He walks in the room and it's just, you know, dimly lit room with like plumbing he says this is ominous totally. dark and ominous it's dark and ominous it's it's totally freaky there there are things in here there are pipes i don't know why but i feel like you know since we make everything a fucking shirt on this show we need like plumbing and it just says there are pipes i just 
There are things in here. There are pipes. Dark, dark and ominous pipes. Oh, guys, you don't understand. It's, it's so ominous in here. There, and there are things in here. There, there are pipes. Look over there. There's another pipe, and it's dark, and it's ominous. Oh, my! It's mankind. Yeah, so mankind's there, and uh, he's rocking back and forth and making his funny noises, and he starts doing his promo, and he says, there's no place like home. And then he starts licking for real a filthy pipe and you can see like the lick marks. Uh, and then he's pulling his hair out, uh, at the end. I mean, this is some of the best stuff, you know, that, that you guys are doing at the time. I thought the promo really, really, really set up the match in a big way, at least for me, because you got a peak of where you're going to be. And that this guy is fucking crazy. And you know, it is wow. pretty ominous to see plumbing. I mean, I know I get freaked out when I see plumbing, don't you? dark and ominous pipes yes in alabama we're lucky you know we just got that indoor plumbing recently and when i see it whoo it just catches me off guard you know well especially when it's dark and ominous and in the bowels <laughs> yeah bowel uh, plumbing can be dark and <laughs> ominous was um was pat patterson comfortable down there in the bowels um you know what conrad i'm not, I'm not going to comment on those kind of just just illicit rude remarks what? No, I mean, he's the agent for the match, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Well, yeah. I mean, who else would belong yeah. in the bowels than, than Pat Patrick. Patterson? He's a bowel expert. <laughs> he's seen a lot of them. They're dark and ominous. <laughs> and uh, have pipes. They do. They do. Uh, so mankind gets Look the win over. T- <laughs> Some of the pipes are bigger than others. Hey, look in the distance. There's a big black one. So mankind, look, there's a whole bunch of silver ones there and white ones and a Twinkie one, uh, mankind beats the undertaker 26 minutes and 20 seconds. The rules of the match is that the first person to break out of the boiler room and get to the ring to get the urn from Paul bear would be the winner. Um, the rumor in innuendo is that the first part of the match was taped the previous day. And this was done just for editing purposes in case something were to go wrong. Um, so did you shoot it the day before? What time of day was it shot? Who was the cameraman? Who was the director? And what was up with the weird static stuff that we saw? We did shoot it the day before. Uh, Vince, myself, Patrick, and um, the talent, along with the television production crew they were in to set up for the next day. Uh, we shot it. We shot it that day. Uh, I don't know, sometime in the afternoon. All I remember was I had gout and I was in a ton of pain and Vince made me walk from the hotel to the, uh, to the building with gout. And if you've ever had gout, you know, just how painful it is to put any weight on your feet at all, but, uh, did it. And we went through and just kind of walked, we walked the boiler room and looked at the pipes and how dark and ominous it was. And kind of laid out, laid out the match. And we, we shot the damn thing we, with, um, I think we did it with two cameras in there. I have no idea who the old cameramen were, but we shot it through the truck, which is, which is why you had, um, real life, uh, interference and, and static in there because at one point, uh, two points, actually, we, we kind of camera got jacked up a little bit and the best way to cover it was. Add more static and 
just say technical difficulties. That's what we really have. Uh, how did Taker enjoy working with mankind? I think Taker loved working with mankind because he was so unorthodox. He being uh, mankind and mankind stuff looked like it killed you, but he was for the most part, I've heard from everybody that he, that he was light as a feather. Um, mankind took most of the brunt of the punishment, put it on himself and his own body is, is evidence, you know, the way poor Mick works or walks today. But they enjoyed working with each other. Their, their styles complemented one another and Undertaker and Mankind made some beautiful music together and they their all their stuff was vicious. It was violent, looked violent and extremely real and convincing. Did you guys set up, um, did you bring in those boxes that Mankind fell off the ladder onto or were those just there and you just positioned them properly? Mm, no, those were, those were our boxes. Yeah. Just to kind of, and, and that that's, you show how much the business evolved. That was our quote, uh, airbag. Yeah. Mick just had boxes Yeah, to fall into. That's all he needed. Well, one thing, so I guess everybody's probably figured this out, but when he punches through the door after there's all the stuff kind of barricading the door from that point on the show is live. So you're going down the hallway and they want you to know it's live because you see all the superstars kind of lying in the hallway. Was there right. any sort of discussion of who should be there? Who shouldn't be? Um, because that's kind of something unique at the time that you guys weren't doing a lot of the backstage brawl where all the other guys are around. We were, and we did have, we just asked talent, you guys who had worked earlier that night, we wanted people to kind of be, watching like, oh my God, th- this is breaking that breaking down back here and right. just try to make it as real as you could. You wouldn't have a, a, an empty hallway. Right. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. And I thought Jr. had a great line where he said, this looks like a prison riot. And one of the easy things you could do that I thought was cool is when they supposedly had scalding hot coffee thrown on the undertaker. I mean, if you say it's hot, then it's hot. That's, that's fun stuff. And then uh, Undertaker broke a two by four over mankind's back. Richie Posner do that for you? No, that was just a, a real two by four that had kind of been weakened. Oh, there you go. But oh yeah, no, that that stuff was real. And the go back and watch the scalding hot coffee. When you go back and watch it, you see the steam coming up from the ground. So not only did we tell you it was scalding hot coffee but you go back and you can actually see the steam coming up from the ground on the coffee. Well, the way it's shot is he's kind of undertaker's kind of staggering around and it's like a weirdly lit angle. It feels like it's out of a horror movie. I mean, it's really cool. You see mankind crawl through the entrance. Uh, he finally makes his way down towards the ring. I thought this was a, a pretty cool deal. They have mankind give the undertaker a pile driver on the cement. He peels away the, um, the padding there to give him that pile driver. And then of course, a few minutes later, we see mankind take one of the most vicious bumps. And I don't know that it was sold properly on the live broadcast or in the newsletter, because it just makes all of me hurt to take a flat back off the apron onto the concrete. Does anybody try to talk him out of that? That is such a brutal bump. Vince usually tried to talk Mick out of the majority of his bumps. And Mitt just had a way of talking Vince and convincing Vince that it was safe and that, that he, how he took it, it, it would be okay. 
that was a thud. And you see Mick's head hit. And it just, watching it, I I cringed watching it because you feel that in your body. Just watching it again, I rolled it back to see his head hit. And just the, 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 the sound. Even when you go in slow motion, it's just um, incredible. The, the punishment that Mick Foley has put his body through over the years, how he's walking today is a miracle in and of itself. It really is. It's, it's such a testament to his commitment to the business. And, you know, obviously you can be critical of it in hindsight, but God, what a sacrifice he made for us, the fans. It's just, it's an awesome bump. Uh, of course we finally get back into the ring here and mankind has, um, you know, been, been out of commission after he's taken this flat back. So this gives the undertaker an opportunity to slide in and kneel down and get this urn from Paul bear and bear is just kind of looking around as if he's teasing. Should I give it to him or should I not? Mankind makes the attack, gives him the mandible claw undertaker goes down. So now mankind goes to get the urn. But as soon as Paul Bear raises the air and the undertaker sits up and mankind puts the claw back on the undertaker, finally bear slaps him and kicks him. Uh, and then eventually hits undertaker over the head with the urn. It makes a really nice sound and gives the urn to mankind. There's your winner. Uh, the undertaker has been turned on by Paul bear. So the lights go out and music plays and a group of druids in the dark carrying out the dead undertaker to the back. Um, this is an interesting match and there's a lot of stuff going on, but a lot of people have been critical about the idea that the people in the crowd could not see what was going on. And you guys wheeled out the substitute teacher television set where it's, it's a, a a medium sized TV strapped to a cart that you slot out a few. And now the 20,000 people in the arena are going to watch these little baby TVs. Well, the, the overhead screens had it up on the overhead screens. The, the small TVs that you saw, those were for the people in the front row. They were the, they were the largest monitors available <laughs> at that time. It's just you amazing know, to me. That's like 1996. Hey. It looked terrible. And on top of that, not only did it look terrible, but once the guys got into the ring, there was no way to get those out right. inconspicuously. Sure. So you, you paid for your ticket. You're there in the arena and you're watching the second main event on a little TV or on the overhead. That's ridiculous. So it it was, yeah, that was probably not the best. And and it was evident by the lack of crowd reaction. Who's uh, Taker was making, making a comeback. Whose decision was it to turn Paul? I mean, this, this act had been together for a long time. By this point, a lot of people assumed they were kind of inseparable. And and I'm sure it was really hard to imagine what would Paul bear do if he wasn't with the undertaker, but we got that. So whose idea was it? It was Vince's idea. He wanted, he wanted to give undertaker a a fresh coat of paint and wanted to give Paul bear a fresh coat of paint. Undertaker needed to go away for a little while at this point, just needed to rejuvenate. And Vince was looking for something for Paul to do and just thought, man, what if, what if we turn Paul bear? Um, you know, I, I go back and I, I loved, I loved the boiler room portion of the match. I loved, I loved everything with the exception. And this is one of those times that Vince and I kind of got, I don't want to say heated, 
but yeah, heated where we really disagreed on how to do something. Um, at the very end, when Undertaker did the Shakespeare to Paul Bearer for the urn, my idea at the time was I wanted Paul to hold hold the urn up high overhead like he was going to make a big presentation to and the then Undertaker. And hit it with it right then. And then nail Undertaker right then. That's way better. Allowing mankind to then come in and do the rest of the – do the claw on Undertaker and leave Undertaker out and then get the urn. I love that. Um Vince's idea was what we saw. He, he wanted Paul to milk it. He wanted Paul to, to kind of walk away. And so that, you know, the turn is coming, but then you think undertaker is going to make a comeback and blah, blah, blah. I just wanted that, that initial shock. I wanted the, Oh, oh Paul just turned this way. You knew he was turning right. and you didn't get to the payoff and, and, and they made comebacks back and forth. Um, I lost. Cool. And we did it. And, and it wasn't bad, but it, it, in my opinion, I think that it would have been better to just do the one big payoff uh, with the urn come crashing down. And I tapped out. Okay. Whatever you want to do. So, uh, the, you know, the other thing in that match that, that kind of goes by Undertaker and his, his right elbow smashed his right elbow kind of midway through the the scene in the boiler room and it looks like a little cut, you know, uh, as you, as you watch the thing, that little cut turned into a staph infection. Oh my. That, that ended up with taker having about a six inch gash spending four days in the emergency room with IVs. Um, at, at the time we thought it was so great because the doctor had cleaned it out and the doctor did what they call a baseball stitch. Oh yeah. That's great. Which a baseball stitch is like the, I mean, tight and, and it's not going to allow anything in or out. And it's, it's a real good stitch. If you've got a really good sterile environment, the problem was, was that he was in that boiler room with all that dirt and all that filth for so long it, that it, it was in there. It was in there. And the doc cleaned it out. The doc did the best he could under the circumstances. And no one knew, obviously, that the damn thing was going to turn into staff. But, man, it got ugly. And uh, Taker uh, ended up, I think, like four days in an emergency room um, in a hospital bed with IV. just uh, putting antibiotics into him. And it, it went up his arm, and it was ugly. But that was... That's the wrestling business. Well, and, and it's unfortunate because two months after that, of course, he would he would pass away and be buried alive. There you the, go. Well, the, I think I think the effects of the staff were still within him at that time. Yeah, and I think the rest of the staff actually buried him. Easy, Tiger. Not as much as we've buried Jerry Jarrett on the show. Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Wrong. Huh? <laughs> I say wrong, Jarrett, but you got it. All right, let's get to the main event. That's what we're here for. John Michaels pinned Big Van Vader to retain the WWF title. Uh, Meltzer would note that Vader had very noticeably dropped some weight. You got something here, Bruce? Yeah. I, 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 come on, man. Vader wrestled the most exciting, the most electrifying, the most charismatic superstar in the WWF. 
John Michaels. Did you? I, I, I actually wrote that down as he was right before Sean came out. It's time! It's time for the most exciting, the most electrifying, the most charismatic WWE. And they hit Sean's music. <laughs> and I'm just thinking to myself now, going, I wonder if I called that music a little early <laughs> for Vince. Or if, if I, and I tried to go back to my thinking at that time, thinking, oh shit, is Vince cueing me to, to get to the music? Or should yeah, I have waited? Time. Yeah. But I killed the fuck out of it, yeah. Well, let's talk about it. It was an excellent match, according to Dave Meltzer. Um, lots of, of big spots in here. There are the spots that we're going to talk about, some of which we've already talked about in our Vader episode, which is available in the archives. But Michaels has really got his working boots on here. And I think you could make an argument that, you know, this era, Shawn Michaels through when he leaves in, what, March of 98, is probably you know, the best in-ring performer ever. Um, the match here has some interesting spots. There is a spot where, um, Sean does a top rope tope to the floor on Vader and then slides back into the ring and then does like a Hulk Hogan spoof where he pretends to rip a t-shirt off uh, for the crowd and then kind of makes a goofy face to the camera. And you guys at the time, we're kind of doing a lot of comparing about the main event. The undercard for WCW may have been stronger and had a better work rate, but when you compared the top of the cards, the WWF main events to the WCW main events, there's no comparison between Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels in 96. Wouldn't you agree? I wholeheartedly agree. I think that Shawn Michaels was the single best in-ring performer in the world at that point in time. Uh, eventually, um, we see Shawn go to the top, and goes to jump off on Vader, and for whatever reason, something is miscommunicated. Sean lands on his feet and is very frustrated, leans down in Sean's face and or Vader's face and yells, Move, and then kicks him in the head, says move, and kicks him in the head again. Eventually they're up, Sean is still talking, uh, and then they take the uh, the tumble to the floor. When Vader gets back to his feet, he presses Sean, drops him across the guardrail, and Vader wins by countout. Cornette starts ranting and raving. He doesn't want a countout win. He wants the title. and challenges Sean to restart the match. The match is restarted, so Vader goes after Jose Lothario, uh, which gives Cornette a chance to use the racket on Sean. Um, Vader has some more success, but eventually Sean gets the racket and hits Vader and Cornette with it several times. So two minutes later, we've got a DQ and now Vader has won a second time. The first time by count out the second time by DQ. And now Cornette is asking for the match to be restarted as they're doing a big pull apart. Gorilla monsoon. Okay's it. Finally, we get Sean to hit the super kick, but Vader kicks out and the crowd is shocked. There's a ref bump. Vader hits the power bomb and there's no ref to count the fall. So a second ref comes in, but now Sean kicks out. So Vader climbs up for the Vader bomb. Cornette tells him to go even higher for the moonsault. Of course, Vader misses. Sean climbs to the top, hits a moonsault body block, and gets the pin after about three minutes of the third restart. The match got four stars in the Observer, but what everybody's talked about is the fallout of this match and the miscue inside of it that caused Sean 
to apparently campaign to have Vader removed from the future plans in the main event. So we talked about it in our Vader episode, but not everybody's heard that Bruce catch us up. What happened in the match? What'd you think of the match? What can you share with us about what the plan was supposed to be? And then what actually happened? The match itself, I thought was very good. Um, there, you know, you got the miscues that the, for people that know, you know, you know, and you see what happened. Uh, the spot that was a miscue was Sean had told Vader to, to move on Sean coming off the top rope with an elbow and Sean got up to the top rope and went to jump and Vader wasn't moving. So instead of dropping an elbow on him, he just jumped, kicked Vader in the head and said, I said, move. And Leon just laid there. So that was frustration on Sean's part and probably, you know, a little bit of immaturity there too, getting pissed off. They go into it. And, and again, you know, you look at this thing, hindsight, you know, the problems and you know what everybody was upset about after the fact on the, after the second, uh, false finish, if you will, after the second DQ, when Sean pinned Vader and Vader was supposed to kick out, Vader did not kick out and the referee counted one, two, and was slapping down and Vader didn't kick out. So the referee was stuck kind of, he didn't count to three because he knew Vader was supposed to uh, count to three. Sean actually gets up and then he was pissed because there was no kick out and, and it. You can't, it's hard when you're live and a guy, you know, it takes two to tango. Right. If the guy, if the guy's laying down on his back and he doesn't kick out when he's supposed to kick out and you just get up, then you look like the idiot. Right. Um, but I think, and again, in defense of Vader at, at this point in the match, I think that Leon was just so frustrated as well because by this point they were miscommunicating and they were kind of all over the place. And Leon being the kind of guy he is, he's a perfectionist. He, he wants to do everything right. He wants to please everybody. And I think he was probably so damn worried that what did happen would happen at this point that he, he wasn't listening and, and probably just was in another world. But the, you know, the finish in the match, you know, was a Pat Patterson masterpiece. Uh, Pat loved to do those restarts and like to get creative with that kind of stuff. Um, but for whatever reason, Vader and Sean, they just, they just didn't click. So after the match, Sean was livid. Sean was livid from the from the spot of, of Vader not moving. Um, whether or not Vader hurt him, who knows? Only Vader knows that. Um, and you know, Sean got pissed off. And then from there, Vader not kicking out on on the three count or on the two count. And Sean feeling like, well, what the hell am I getting up for? It just was a clash of styles. And Vince reevaluated. The idea was to go to November Survivor Series with Vader and Sean and for Vader to become the WWF champion at Survivor Series. And of course, so then, that wound up being Sid. And that wound up being Sid. And then it was supposed to go to the Alamo Dome with Vader and Sean for the return for the championship, where Sean would then win the title back in his hometown of uh, San Antonio, Texas. Jim Cornette even had uh, an idea when he was going to go out with Vader. This is when we were talking about this, like in July, 
of getting to the Alamo Dome and, and going out with Vader in a Santa Ana costume, a uh, whole Santa Ana outfit. And for you history buffs, Santa Ana was the Mexican general that defeated all them Tennessee pussies uh, at the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas. Um, if we don't have somebody Photoshop Jim Cornette's head on Antonio Lopez de Santa Anta, uh, <laughs> we are missing out. That sounds like a good time. I just Googled that dude. And man, this jacket that he's rocking here, this general's outfit. Yeah. We needed to see Jim Cornette dressed up like Santa Anna. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and just, and just for the record, it wasn't a bunch of Texans that lost at the Alamo. It was the, the people from Tennessee that had come in to fight there. The Tennessee people lost. It wasn't the Texas people who lost. Cause when the Texans finally got a fight at the battle of San Jacinto here in Houston, the Texans won. Um, in hindsight, do you think this was the nail in the coffin? for Bader in the WWE in hindsight. Yes. How much of that can be contributed to Shawn Michaels being unprofessional? How much can it can be contributed to Vader? Just wasn't WWF material. 50, 50. I think that, uh, to me in this match in particular, the first half of it, I thought that Vader had his working shoes on. Sure. And they were having a great match. And even after the miscues, uh, again, you take the, you take those two miscues out of it. It's a pretty damn good match. It was, it was a damn great match, but those two miscues were huge miscues, but at the and same- you can miss, you can miscue in a house show. You can miscue, uh, on a tape television show, but when you're live and, it, and it's a, a major deal and it's the first time. Um, moving forward. And I don't know they had the best chemistry in, in house shows that I remember either. There's, there's rumor and innuendo out there that at somehow show, um, Sean was on Vader's case so much that Vader cried that he was seriously emotionally affected because he felt like he didn't know what to do. Like hey, I'm hitting you too hard. You're not hitting me enough. And, and I, I find, I kind of feel bad for Vader and I know we've had fun talking about Vader here on the show and you've you know, made, we've had some fun times, but he was a great performer and, uh, he had a huge upside. We had seen that in WCW. He was positioned in a good spot here. And I feel like a lot of his career maybe took a shit because he just didn't hear a spot. Like, isn't it totally plausible that he just didn't hear him? Now I understand it is plausible. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that, you know, you're supposed to kick out, but you know, when Sean's on the top rope, maybe he just didn't fucking hear him. Yeah. And, and that's without a doubt, that's plausible. Um, but it was also the reality of the times Can, and the what, reality of the times was, uh, Sean was, uh, King shit. And if you didn't have chemistry with him, and he didn't want to work with you then next. And then uh, Vince would find someone that he felt fit that role. And when you had, and, and also keep in mind the timing. Warriors, Warriors now left the company. Sid's back. Sid is the guy that Vince has always looked at. Is you know the has the body, has sure. the promo, he has that look. Well, now I've got Sid here. God, I can just slide Sid into this, and we're golden. No, I get it. But let me ask you this, uh, and I'm not saying this to dump on Sean. In this same show, I've said that I think this run of Sean is probably the best in ring performer ever, but. Catch me up in your opinion, because you may not remember, but did you ever hear, or do you believe that Hulk Hogan would have ever 
handled himself this way, the way Shawn Michaels did, or Bret Hart, or Steve Austin, or The Rock, or John Cena, or any of these top guys that we know have gotten to that next level, would any of them have behaved towards Vader the same way that Shawn did here? Or was Sean Brett, just being kind of petulant? I think I think Brett probably would have in in a similar situation like that. Brett would get frustrated with guys in the ring sometimes and and get pissed off. Uh, I I don't ever remember Hogan doing anything like that. I would see, you know, Hogan. I, I'd never see anything like that with Hogan. Um, I've seen Cena get pissed off with things like that. Um, Every you know everybody's different and and maybe not to the same magnitude that Sean did, but yeah, guys have, have gotten pissed off in the ring when things haven't gone right. Maybe they just didn't you know maybe they didn't do it on a on a pay per view that everybody saw and everybody you right. know commented on. Sure. Well, listen, I I think it's unfortunate, but it is the story of SummerSlam '96. Before we get out of here, I want to go ahead and mention two things briefly. The very next night, Raw was held in Wheeling, West Virginia of 4,903 fans. There was a gate of $54,887. Both were the very best for Wheeling, West Virginia since 1990. Uh, why am I mentioning this? Well, they had some tryout matches there. Uh, Rick Titan got a tryout with Frank Stiletto and Rick Titan went on to be who? It was Razor Ramon, wasn't it? The fake razor. And it's funny <laughs> well, because razor. when you read uh, the the Observer, Meltzer says Titan didn't look good, uh, but Stiletto looked good enough. They brought him back later for another tryout match. So I think it's funny that here we are in August, only a month or six weeks or so before we do the fake razor angle. And he's getting a tryout, and the report is it's not very good. They had another uh, tryout match that night. David Haskins lost a match to a guy named Flex Kavana. Do you remember old Flex Kavana ever having a tryout match? You remember his first tryout match for old Flex Kavana? We didn't call him we didn't call him Flex there, did we? I think we yeah. I think we I think we called him Dewey, didn't we? No, he was Flex Kavana here. Nah, he's Flex Kavana in, in, in Memphis. I don't know. Well, maybe we did. I don't know. He was he was working yeah, he was working Memphis at that time. There's a lot of people who have no idea who you're talking about. Are you gonna tell them their, his name? If you spell what Dewey Johnson is cooking. I think it's kind of cool that one day after SummerSlam 96, that's where he has his first match. And you've often heard, you know, him refer to Wheeling, West Virginia as where it all began for him when he was first on the big show, uh, about a month after SummerSlam 96, Shane McMahon would get married. Were you at Shane's wedding? I was at Shane's wedding. Can you tell, what can you tell us about a McMahon wedding? Shane got married in September of 1996. They, they dropped the mother-in-law. Uh, you know, they were doing one of those dances where they, they got the people in the chairs, right? And they hold them over their heads and they carry them around the room. Yeah. And they, and they dropped Joe Mazzola and <laughs> it was like, <gasps> but they caught her. So no harm, no foul. That was a lot of fun. That was, that was a good time. That was at the Pierre hotel in New York. And, and it was, uh, it was, um, kind of class personified. It was a hoity-toity deal. It was nice. Well, uh, we're going to have um, the opposite uh, of class. Well, wait, you wanted a story. Yeah. You want a story about the wedding. One of my, my favorite one of my favorite parts of that wedding. And, and one of the pictures of my wife and I in, I'm looking to see if I have one in the office. I don't. Um, 
is from Shane's wedding because it was a formal affair. But but probably my favorite part about Shane's wedding was sitting with Freddie Blassie and his wife, Miyoko, um, and eating sushi at the cocktail hour. And just uh, the four of us sitting there and and listening and seeing this man, this ma- this this mean, nasty heel, Freddie Blassie, and how he just so loved his wife and was just a a pussycat around her. Um, and that was that was my probably my favorite thing about Shane's wedding was spending so much time with Freddie and Mioka and just having a blast there. All right, we had uh, a poll up on Facebook where you got to vote on what you wanted to hear. And then once this show won, we asked you if you had any questions. So if you'd like to participate in the conversation or shape next week's show, cruise on over to Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Throw us a like, uh, and let's get to some of your questions about SummerSlam 96. We're going to hit them rapid fire. Bruce, are you ready? Ready. How long had you guys been planning on breaking up Paul Bear and The Undertaker? Probably about three months, three, four months. Hypothetically speaking, what would Corny say about the three finishes in the main event? This fucking horse shit. How does Stone Cold go from winning King of the Ring to working free for all on the second biggest pay-per-view of the year? Timing, everybody. We covered that, and it was just simply timing. Simply. Why wasn't Simply, Bruce... I know. First time tonight, maybe. You're not even sure anymore. Uh, what, <laughs> I'm not. What did Bruce think about HBK freaking out when Vader didn't move when Sean was going off the top rope? What'd you At think? At the time? Yeah. Oh, hell. <laughs> I mean, uh, that was my reaction. Why, why wasn't Brutus the fucking barber brought back and booked on this show? Oh, we couldn't afford him. Uh, why was there no commentary during the boiler room brawl? Was that a conscious decision beforehand or was it made during the broadcast? There was some commentary, but Vince decided he wanted to lay out and just let the pictures tell the story. Um, was anyone against the boiler room brawl? Not that I know of. No. Uh, pay-per-view numbers were down at the time. What was Vince's reaction to the number of buys for this show? I have no idea. Uh, was the plan for Sid to always have a comeback or was that just a last minute thing to replace warrior? That was a last-minute thing to replace Warrior, uh, looking for somebody of that magnitude to replace him, and Sid was available and worked out. Had Warrior not had his falling out with Vince, would we have seen him challenge Shawn Michaels for the title at some point? Maybe at some point, but certainly not at SummerSlam, no. Was there ever any thought to bringing in Harley Race to be Vader's manager? No. Wow, here's, here's the thing we've been waiting for. Uh, what would Johnny A sound like singing Shawn Michaels music? I'm just a sexy boy, sexy boy. I'm not your boy toy, boy toy. I'm just a sexy boy. Thank you, sir. All right, By the way, get... boss, your arms look great today. Thank Can you. I put some oil on the tricep? I think I'm good. Thank you, Johnny. All right, let's get to it. I want you to vote okay. in the poll. We are fired up about the next two-week show. Let me go ahead and tell you, we've got big stuff coming your way, man. Go ahead and mark your calendars. Just in time for the 15-year anniversary, on the 25th of August, you can plan to see SummerSlam 2002, uh, one of the more iconic SummerSlams, and it happened uh, 15 years to the day. What a good show this was with Brock and Rock on the main event. You've also got Shawn Michaels and Triple H and Shawn's return. 
Uh, Rob Van Dam took on Chris Benoit. The Un-Americans are there. Edge and Eddie Guerrero are working together. Kurt Angle and Rey Mysterio. Rick Flair and Chris Jericho. What a loaded show. Set your calendars. Tell your friends. SummerSlam 2002 is the 25th. But what's happening on the 18th? What are we going to talk about next week? Well, we've got our poll lined up for you. Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Poll option number one, Shane Douglas in the WWF. Of course, he had a run very early in the 90s, and then he came back as Dean Douglas, uh, and that would set him afire where he had plenty of opportunity to cut promo after promo in ECW. What might we talk about if Shane Douglas in the WWF wins the poll? <laughs> you, you know, this could just be termed as the rise and fall of Shane Douglas in one word, or well, two words, Dean Douglas. So it, it just the entire backstage scenario and politics that went on with Shane coming in and what we expected from him and pretty much what we got. It's kind of interesting because he was there in the WWF from 90 to 91. Uh, and he bounced around a little bit back in the WWF in 95. Uh, but he doesn't have near the run that maybe he expected to. But he had great success in ECW. Cool little run in WCW. Uh, Shane Douglas in the WWF is poll topic number one. One of our most requested topics is poll topic number two. Say hello to the bad guy. It's Razor Ramon in the WWF. One of the more iconic characters. Uh, we actually sat down and watched some of the vignettes last year together, Bruce. And uh, you were there from the very beginning of this Razor Ramon character. What can you tell us about Razor Ramon WWF? With what Vince saw in Razor Ramon, uh, the, the different, not only was I there when, I, I wasn't actually there when Razor made his debut. I came right after the vignettes, right after he debuted there. And so I was there for his entire first run. And going through all the issues and angles that we had to deal with. But also, I'm going to tell the story about the journey of Scott Hall long before Razor Ramon and the different times and who was pushing for Scott Hall to come in long before that, why it didn't work out, and why Razor was such a success. And the backstage politics. We're going to talk a lot about the click with Razor Ramon and Scott Hall, Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash, and Triple H. And, of course, X-Pac and a lot of behind-the-scenes politics and dealing with the bad guy. Lots to talk about if uh, Scott Hall wins. 92 to 96 is the area you'll enjoy there. But we have got a ton to cover in poll topic number three. I don't know how we'll fit it all into one show. It's Jerry Lawler in the WWF. Uh, Lawler had a run from 92 to 2001. And then, of course, from 01 to 14. Feels like he's been everywhere. Uh, we'll try to get as much of that as we can in. Of course, Bruce left in 2008. What might we talk about if Jerry Lawler in the WWF wins the poll? Well, we got to co- cover all the controversy with the King leaving with uh, alleged uh, sexual misconduct, if you will. Alleged. I said alleged. Um, King coming back um, and then King, of course, leaving when the cat was gone. Uh, King making some accusations about me on a live radio show and uh, talking about me and Stephanie McMahon having an affair and how I felt about that, how I still do feel about that. But the inner dealings of working with Jerry Lawler, not only in the WWE, but also working with Jerry as he ran Memphis Wrestling and Power Pro Wrestling and helping out with our developmental territory because I spent a lot of time in Memphis working with the King. An extremely intriguing subject in the King, Jerry Lawler. 
Last but certainly not least, it's a pretty timely topic. It's Brock Lesnar's rookie year in the WWE. What might we cover if we cover Brock Lesnar's very first year on the main roster for World Wrestling Entertainment? Brock smash. Um, the meteoric rise, man, of the next big thing, Brock Lesnar. Who Brock Lesnar liked to snuggle with the most on international flights and why it was me and not Kurt Angle. Uh, we're going to talk about a crazy night in Helsinki, Finland with Brock Lesnar and just what we saw in the next big thing and probably the biggest thing in the sport right now, Brock Lesnar. So there you go. There are your four poll topics. Let's recap again. Poll topic number one, of course, Shane Douglas in the WWF. Poll topic number two, Razor Ramon in the WWF. Poll topic number three, Jerry Lawler in the WWF. And of course, last but certainly not least, Brock Lesnar's rookie year in the company. Go vote in the poll right now. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Tell your friends to like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Until next week, right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.